Section 15 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 4, Verses 1 to 6. Baptism and its True Position, Our Lord's Human Nature. John, Chapter 4, Verses 1 to 6. When, therefore, the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There are two sayings in these verses which deserve particular notice. They throw light on two subjects in religion, on which clear and well-defined opinions are of great importance. We should observe, for one thing, what is said about baptism. We read that Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. The expression here used is a very remarkable one. In reading it we seem irresistibly led to one instructive conclusion. That conclusion is that baptism is not the principal part of Christianity, and that to baptize is not the principal work for which Christian ministers are ordained. Frequently we read of our Lord preaching and praying, once we read of his administering the Lord's Supper, but we have not a single instance recorded of his ever baptizing anyone. And here we are distinctly told that it was a subordinate work, which he left to others. Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. The lesson is one of peculiar importance in the present day. Baptism, as a sacrament ordained by Christ himself, is an honorable ordinance, and ought never to be lightly esteemed in the churches. It cannot be neglected or despised without great sin. When rightly used, with faith and prayer, it is calculated to convey the highest blessings. But baptism was never meant to be exalted to the position which many nowadays assign to it in religion. It does not act as a charm. It does not necessarily convey the grace of the Holy Spirit. The benefit of it depends greatly on the manner in which it is used. The doctrine taught, and the language employed about it, in some quarters, are utterly inconsistent with the fact announced in the text. If baptism was all that some say it is, we should never have been told that Jesus himself baptized not. Let it be a subtle principle in our minds that the first and chief business of the Church of Christ is to preach the gospel. The words of St. Paul ought to be constantly remembered. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17 when the gospel of Christ is faithfully and fully preached, we need not fear that the sacraments will be undervalued. Baptism and the Lord's Supper will always be most truly reverenced. In those churches where the truth as it is in Jesus is most fully taught and known. We should observe, for another thing, in this passage, what is said about our Lord's human nature. We read that Jesus was wearied with his journey. We learn from this as well as many other expressions in the Gospels, that our Lord had a body exactly like our own. When the Word became flesh, He took on Him a nature like our own in all things, sin only excepted. 
like ourselves he grew from infancy to youth and from youth to man's estate like ourselves he hungered thirsted felt pain and needed sleep he was liable to every sinless infirmity to which we are liable in all things his body was framed like our own the truth before us is full of comfort for all who are true christians he to whom sinners are bid to come for pardon and peace is one who is man as well as god he had a real human nature when he was upon earth he took real human nature with him when he ascended up into heaven we have at the right hand of god a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities because he has suffered himself being tempted when we cry to him in the hour of bodily pain and weakness he knows well what we mean when our prayers and praises are feeble through bodily weariness he can understand our condition he knows our frame he has learned by experience what it is to be a man to say that the virgin mary or any one else can feel more sympathy for us than christ is ignorance no less than blasphemy the man christ jesus can enter fully into everything that belongs to man's condition the poor the sick and the suffering have in heaven one who is not only an almighty saviour but a most feeling friend the servant of christ should grasp firmly this great truth that there are two perfect and complete natures in the one person whom he serves the lord jesus in whom the gospel bids us believe is without doubt almighty god equal to the father in all things and able to save to the uttermost all those that come unto god by him but that same jesus is no less certainly perfect man able to sympathize with man in all his bodily sufferings and acquainted by experience with all that man's body has to endure power and sympathy are marvelously combined in him who died for us on the cross because he is god we may repose the weight of our souls upon him with unhesitating confidence he is mighty to save because he is man we may speak to him with freedom about the many trials to which flesh is heir he knows the heart of man here is rest for the weary here is good news our redeemer is man as well as god and god as well as man he that believeth on him has everything that a child of adam can possibly require either for safety or for peace notes john chapter four verses one to six verse one when therefore the lord knew etc the connection between this chapter and the last will be found at the twenty-fifth verse of the last chapter the controversy between john's disciples and the jews was the means of calling public attention to our lord's ministry it became a subject of common conversation and attracted the notice of the principal religious teachers of the jews phys the pharisees they had already been disturbed by the ministry of john the baptist and the crowds which attended it john chapter one verses nineteen to twenty eight the deputation which they sent to john had been distinctly told by him that one greater than himself was about to appear when therefore the pharisees heard that jesus was actually baptizing more disciples and attracting more attention than john we can well imagine that their minds would be even more disturbed than before a vague uncomfortable feeling would arise in their hearts that this mysterious person who had cast out of the temple the buyers and sellers in so miraculous a manner and was now baptizing so many disciples might possibly be the christ and then would come the attendant feeling 
that if this was the Christ, he was not the Christ they expected or wanted. The result of both feelings would probably be a bitter enmity against our Lord, and a secret determination, if possible, to settle all doubts by putting him to death. In what manner our Lord knew what the Pharisees had heard, we need not be careful to inquire. Possibly he knew it from information obtained by his disciples. We can hardly doubt that some of them kept up intercourse with their old master, John the Baptist, and so learned what was going on at Annon. It is more probable that he knew it from his omniscience as God. We are frequently told that he knew the thoughts of his enemies, and acted and spoke accordingly. It is good for us all to remember that nothing is spoken, talked of, or reported among men, however secretly, which Christ does not know. Verse 2. Though Jesus himself baptized not, etc. The fact that our Lord did not actually administer baptism with his own hands is only mentioned here in the Gospels, and is noteworthy. It shows, at any rate, that what is done by Christ's ministers, at Christ's command, in the administration of ordinances, is regarded as done by Christ himself. The preceding verse says that Jesus baptized, while the present one says that he baptized not. Lightfoot remarks, It is ordinary, both in scripture phrase and in other language, to speak of a thing as done by a man himself, which is done by another at his appointment. So Pharaoh's daughter is said to nurse Moses, and Solomon is said to build the temple and his own house. So David took Saul's spear and cruise, meaning Abishai, by David's appointment. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 12. The reasons assigned for our Lord not administering baptism with his own hands are various. Lightfoot mentions four. 1. Because he was not sent so much to baptize as to preach. 2. Because it might have been taken as a thing somewhat improper for Christ to baptize in his own name. 3. Because the baptizing that was most proper for Christ to use was not with water but with the Holy Ghost. 4. Because he would prevent all quarrels and disputes among men about their baptism, which might have arisen if some had been baptized by Christ and others only by his disciples. To these reasons we may add another of considerable importance. Our Lord would show us that the effect and benefit of baptism do not depend on the person who administers it. We cannot doubt that Judas Iscariot baptized some. The intention of the minister does not affect the validity of the sacrament. One thing seems abundantly clear, and that is that baptism is not an ordinance of primary but of subordinate importance in Christianity. The high-flown and extravagant language used by some divines about the sacrament of baptism and its effects is quite irreconcilable with the text before us, as well as with the general teaching of Scripture. See Acts chapter 10, verse 48, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Verse 3. He left Judea, etc. The context of the preceding verses seems to show that this movement was intended to avoid the designs of the Pharisees against our Lord. If he had remained in Judea, he would have been cut off and put to death before the appointed time. He therefore withdrew into the province of Galilee, where he was further off from Jerusalem, and where his ministry would attract less public notice. Our Lord's conduct on this occasion shows us that it is not obligatory on a Christian to await danger to life and person when he sees it coming and that it is not cowardice to use all reasonable means to avoid it. We are not to court martyrdom, or needlessly to throw our lives away. There is a time for all things, a time to live and work, as well as a time to suffer and to die. 
whether some of the primitive martyrs would have acted as our lord did here may be questioned their zeal for martyrdom seems sometimes to have partaken of the character of fanaticism verse four he must needs go through samaria many pious and profitable remarks have been made on this expression it has been thought to teach that our lord went purposefully and out of the regular road in order to save the soul of the samaritan woman it admits of grave question whether this opinion is well founded there was no other way by which a person could conveniently go from judea to galilee except through samaria the expression therefore is probably nothing more than a natural introduction to the story of the samaritan woman the first in the train of circumstances which led to her conversion was the circumstance that jesus was obliged to pass through samaria on his journey towards galilee this accounted for his being with a samaritan woman verse five then cometh city called sychar the common opinion is that the city here spoken of is the same as sychem or shechem genesis chapter thirty three verses eighteen and nineteen few places in palestine after jerusalem have had so much of bible history connected with them here god first appeared to abraham genesis chapter twelve verse six here jacob dwelt when he first returned from padan aram and here the disgraceful history of dinah and the consequent murder of the shechemites took place genesis chapter thirty four verse two etc here joseph's brethren fed their flocks when jacob sent him to them little thinking he would never see him again for many years genesis chapter thirty seven verse twelve here when israel took possession of the land of canaan was one of the cities of refuge joshua chapter twenty verses seven and eight here joshua gathered all the tribes when he addressed them for the last time joshua chapter twenty four verse one here the bones of joseph were buried and all the patriarchs were interred joshua chapter twenty four verse thirty two Acts chapter 7 verse 16 here the principal events in the history of abimelech took place judges chapter 9 verse 1 etc here rehoboam met the tribes of israel after solomon's death and gave the answer which rent his kingdom in two first kings chapter 12 verse 1 here jeroboam first dwelt when he was made king of israel first kings chapter 12 verse 25 and finally close by shechem was the city of samaria itself and the two hills of Ebal and Gezerim, where the solemn blessings and cursings were recorded after Israel entered Canaan, Joshua chapter 8, verse 33. A more interesting neighborhood it is difficult to imagine. Whichever way the eye of a wearied traveler looked, he would see something to remind him of Israel's history. It is only fair to say that one of the latest travelers in Palestine, Dr. Thomas, author of The Land and the Book, doubts whether Sychar and Shechem really were the same place. He grounds his doubt on the fact that the well now called Jacob's well is two miles from the ruins of Shechem, and that close to these ruins are beautiful fountains of water. He thinks it highly improbable that a woman of Shechem would go two miles to draw water, if she could find it close by. He therefore thinks it more likely that a place now called Asgar, which is close to Jacob's well, must be the ancient Sychar, and that Sychar and Shechem were two different places. The subject is one on which it is impossible to attain a conclusive decision. Whether the ruins now called the ruins of Shechem are really on the site of the ancient Shechem, whether the well now called Jacob's well is really the well spoken of in this chapter, whether ancient Shechem may not have been nearer the well than it now appears, 
are all points on which after eighteen hundred years have passed away it is impossible to speak positively it ought however to be remembered that the opinion of most competent judges is almost entirely against dr thompson's theory moreover it is worth noticing that the samaritan woman's words neither came hither to draw seem to imply that she had to come some distance to jacob's well when she drew water near parcel ground jacob joseph the ground here spoken of seems to consist of two parts one part was bought by jacob of hamar shechem's father for a hundred pieces of silver genesis chapter thirty three verse twenty nine the other seems to have been his by conquest when his sons slew the shechemites for dishonouring dinah genesis chapter thirty four verse twenty eight and chapter forty eight verse twenty two let it be carefully noted that st john here speaks of jacob and joseph and the events of their lives as if the history contained in genesis was all simple matter of fact it is always so in the new testament the modern theory that the histories of the old testament are only fables destitute of any foundation in fact is a mere baseless invention without a single respectable argument to be adduced in its favour verse six jacob's well it is not known how or when this well received its name in genesis we find mention of abraham and isaac digging wells but not of jacob doing so all we know about it is what we read in the chapter before us a well called jacob's well is still shown to all travellers in palestine near the ruins of shechem and is commonly supposed to be one of the oldest and most genuine remains of ancient times in the holy land in fact there seems no reason for disputing the common belief that it is the very identical well at which our lord sat and held the conversation recorded in this chapter it is in good preservation and about thirty yards deep wearied with his journey this expression deserves notice it shows the reality of our lord's human nature he had a body like our own subject to all the conditions of flesh and blood it shows our lord's infinite compassion humility and condescension when he became flesh and came on earth to live and die for our sins though he was rich he became poor he who had made the world and whose were the cattle on a thousand hills was content to be a weary traveller on foot in order to provide eternal redemption for us we never read of jesus travelling in a carriage and only once of his riding on a beast it supplies the poor with the strongest argument for contentment if christ was willing to be poor we may surely be willing to submit to poverty men need not be ashamed of poverty if they have not brought it on themselves by misconduct it is disgraceful to be profligate and immoral but it is no sin to be poor finally it shows believers what a sympathizing saviour christ is he knows what it is to have a weak and weary body he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities when our work wearies us though we are not weary of our work we may confidently tell jesus and ask him for help he knows the heart of a weary man sat thus on the well the general meaning of these words is that our lord sat down on the stones which according to eastern custom formed a wall or battlement round the mouth of the well the particular meaning of the word thus in the sentence is a point that has perplexed commentators in every age and will perhaps never be settled some think as de dieu a clark and schleusner that thus is a polonism or elegant expletive and redundancy in the greek original and that although a greek would see a meaning in it 
as giving a finish to the sentence it has no special meaning that can be attached to it in the english translation some think as chrysostom theophylact euthymius musculus bengal glacius and wordsworth that thus means just as he was without any regular seat without looking for any convenient position without any pride or formality not upon a throne not upon a cushion but simply on the ground some think as dotteridge that thus means immediately and find a parallel for it in acts chapter twenty verse eleven some think as calvin lightfoot dyke bullinger beza parkhurst steer alford and Burgon, that thus refers to the weariness just mentioned jesus being wearied sat down on the well accordingly after the manner and according to the fashion that any weary person would sit he was weary and so he sat on the well the question is one that i feel unable to settle the last meaning seems to me on the whole the most probable one although it fails to carry complete conviction with it the use of the word so in acts chapter seven verse eight is somewhat like it the greek word for so in that case is the same as the one here rendered thus Burgon remarks on this sentence that jacob and moses each found his future wife beside a well of water and here it is seen that one greater than they their divine antitype the bridegroom takes to himself his alien spouse the samaritan church at a well likewise quiznell remarks the rest of jesus christ is as mysterious and full of kindness and beneficence as his weariness it is a great matter for a man to learn how to rest himself without being idle and to make his necessary repose subservient to the glory of god it was now about the sixth hour what time of the day was this according to our calculation of time by far the most common opinion is that the sixth hour here means twelve o'clock the hottest and sultriest time of the day it is notorious that the jewish day began at six o'clock in the evening our seven o'clock was their one o'clock and their sixth hour would be our twelve o'clock it is however only just and right to say that some commentators as wordsworth and Burgon, maintain strongly that in st john's gospel the jewish mode of reckoning the hours of the day is not observed they say that writing later than the other evangelists and in asia minor st john uses the roman or asiatic method of reckoning time and that the roman mode was like our own they say therefore that when the disciples followed jesus john chapter one verse thirty nine at the tenth hour it was ten o'clock in the morning and when the fever left the ruler's son at the seventh hour it was seven o'clock in the evening john chapter four verse fifty two they say that when pilate brought forth jesus to the jews on the day of the crucifixion at the sixth hour john chapter nineteen verse fourteen it was six o'clock in the morning and finally they say that when jesus in the passage before us sat wearied on the well at the sixth hour it means six o'clock in the evening moreover they plead in support of their view that it is infinitely more likely that a woman would come to a well to draw water at six o'clock in the evening than at twelve o'clock in the day in genesis it is distinctly said that the evening is the time that the women go out to draw water genesis chapter twenty four verse eleven these arguments are undoubtedly weighty and ingenious and the matter is one that admits of doubt nevertheless for several reasons i am disposed to think that the common view of the question is the correct one and that the sixth hour in this place means twelve o'clock in the day 
i purposefully omit the consideration of the other places where st john mentions hours in his gospel none of them seem to me to present any difficulty except the sixth hour in st john's account of the crucifixion that difficulty i shall be prepared to examine in its proper place i think then that the sixth hour in the text before us means twelve o'clock for the following reasons a it seems exceedingly improbable that st john would reckon time in a manner different to the other three gospel writers b it is by no means clear that the romans did reckon time in our way and not in the jewish way when the roman poet horace describes himself as lying late in bed in the morning he says i lie till the fourth hour he must surely mean ten o'clock and not four in the afternoon when the roman poet martial describes the roman day he says the first and second hours are employed by clients in attending levies and the third hour exercises the advocates in the law courts he surely cannot mean that roman law courts did not open until two o'clock in the afternoon about the custom of the asiatics i offer no opinion it is a doubtful point c it is entirely a gratuitous assumption to say that no woman ever came to draw water except in the evening there must surely be exceptions to every rule the fact of the woman coming alone seems of itself to indicate that she came at an unusual hour and not in the evening d last but not least it seems far more probable that our lord would hold a conversation alone with such a person as the samaritan woman at twelve o'clock in the day than at six o'clock in the evening the conversation was not a very short one there is little or no twilight in eastern countries the night soon comes on and yet on the theory i oppose our lord begins a conversation about six o'clock and carries it on till the woman is converted then the woman goes away to the city and tells the men what has happened and they all come out to the well to see jesus yet by this time in all reasonable probability it would be quite dark and the night would have begun and yet after all this our lord says to the disciples lift up your eyes and look on the fields chapter four verse thirty five this last reason weighs very heavily in my mind in forming a conclusion on the subject our lord appears to me to have reached a resting place for the middle of the day according to the eastern custom in travelling and to have intended staying by the well for a short time till the heat of the day was past the arrival of the samaritan woman at this hour of the day gave ample time for conversation for her rapid return to the city and for the coming of the inhabitants to the well i must say that i see a peculiar beauty and fitness in the mention of the sixth hour if it means twelve o'clock which i should not see so strongly if it meant six in the evening to my eyes there is a special seemliness and propriety in the fact that our lord held his conversation with such a person as this samaritan woman at noonday when he talked to nicodemus in the preceding chapter we are told that it was at night but when he talked to a woman of impure life we are carefully told that it was twelve o'clock in the day i see in this fact a beautiful carefulness to avoid even the appearance of evil which i should entirely miss if the sixth hour meant six o'clock in the evening i see even more than this i see a lesson to all ministers and teachers of the gospel about the right mode of carrying on the work of trying to do good to souls like that of the samaritan woman like their master they must be careful about times and hours and specially if they work alone if a man will try to do good to a person like the samaritan woman alone and without witnesses let him take heed that he walks in his master's footsteps 
both as to the time of his proceedings as well as to the message he delivers. I believe there was a deep meaning in the little sentence, it was about the sixth hour. Augustine thinks that the sixth hour here was meant to represent, allegorically, the sixth age of the world. He says that the first hour was from Adam to Noah, the second from Noah to Abraham, the third from Abraham to David, the fourth from David to the Babylonian captivity, the fifth from the captivity to the baptism of John, and the sixth, the time of the Lord Jesus. I can see no foundation for these things in the text. If such interpretations of Scripture are correct, it is easy to make the Bible mean anything. End of section 15section sixteen of expository thoughts on the gospel of st john volume one by j c ryle chapter four verses seven to twenty six christ's tact and condescension christ's readiness to give the excellence of christ's gifts the necessity of conviction of sin the uselessness of formal religion christ's kindness to great sinners john Chapter 4, verses 7 to 26. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me a drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me a drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered, and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that sayest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messias cometh, 
which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. The history of the Samaritan woman, contained in these verses, is one of the most interesting and instructive passages in St. John's Gospel. St. John has shown us, in the case of Nicodemus, how our Lord dealt with the self-righteous formalist. He now shows us how our Lord dealt with an ignorant, carnal-minded woman, whose moral character was more than ordinarily bad. There are lessons in the passage for ministers and teachers, which they would do well to ponder. We should mark, firstly, the mingled tact and condescension of Christ in dealing with a careless sinner. Our Lord was sitting by Jacob's well when a woman of Samaria came thither to draw water. At once, he says to her, Give me a drink. He does not wait for her to speak to him. He does not begin by reproving her sins, though he doubtless knew them. He opens communication by asking a favor. He approaches the woman's mind by the subject of water, which was naturally uppermost in her thoughts. Simple as this request may seem, it opened a door to spiritual conversation. It threw a bridge across the gulf which lay between her and him. It led to the conversion of her soul. Our Lord's conduct in this place should be carefully remembered by all who want to do good to the thoughtless and spiritually ignorant. It is vain to expect that such persons will voluntarily come to us and begin to seek knowledge. We must begin with them, and go down to them in the spirit of courteous and friendly aggression. It is vain to expect that such persons will be prepared for our instruction, and will at once see and acknowledge the wisdom of all we are doing. We must go to work wisely. We must study the best avenues to their hearts, and the most likely way of arresting their attention. There is a handle to every mind, and our chief aim must be to get hold of it. Above all, we must be kind in manner, and beware of showing that we feel conscious of our own superiority. If we let ignorant people fancy that we think we are doing them a great favor in talking to them about religion, there is little hope of doing good to their souls. We should mark, secondly, Christ's readiness to give mercies to careless sinners. He tells the Samaritan woman that if she had asked, he would have given her living water. He knew the character of the person before him perfectly well, yet he says, if she had asked, he would have given. He would have given the living water of grace, mercy, and peace. The infinite willingness of Christ to receive sinners is a golden truth, which ought to be treasured up in our hearts, and diligently impressed on others. The Lord Jesus is far more ready to hear than we are to pray, and far more ready to give favors than we are to ask them. All day long he stretches out his hands to the disobedient and gainsaying. He has thoughts of pity and compassion towards the vilest of sinners, even when they have no thoughts of him. He stands waiting to bestow mercy and grace on the worst and most unworthy, if they will only cry to him. He will never draw back from that well-known promise, Ask, and ye shall receive, seek, and ye shall find. The lost will discover at the last day that they had not, because they asked not. We should mark, thirdly, the priceless excellence of Christ's gifts when compared with the things of this world. Our Lord tells the Samaritan woman, He that drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but he that drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. The truth of the principle here laid down may be seen on every side by all who are not blinded by prejudice or love of the world. 
thousands of men have every temporal good thing that the heart could wish and are yet weary and dissatisfied it is now as it was in david's time there be many that say who will show us any good psalm four verse six riches and rank and place and power and learning and amusements are utterly unable to fill the soul he that only drinks of these waters is sure to thirst again every ahab finds a naboth's vineyard hard by his palace and every haman sees a mordecai at the gate there is no heart satisfaction in this world until we believe in christ jesus alone can fill up the empty places of our inward man jesus alone can give solid lasting enduring happiness the peace that he imparts is a fountain which once set flowing within the soul flows on to all eternity its waters may have their ebbing seasons but they are living waters and they shall never be completely dried we should mark fourthly the absolute necessity of conviction of sin before a soul can be converted to god the samaritan woman seems to have been comparatively unmoved until our lord exposed her breach of the seventh commandment those heart-searching words go call thy husband appear to have pierced her conscience like an arrow from that moment however ignorant she speaks like an earnest sincere inquirer after truth and the reason is evident she felt that her spiritual disease was discovered for the first time in her life she saw herself to bring thoughtless people to this state of mind should be the principal aim of all teachers and ministers of the gospel they should carefully copy their master's example in this place till men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need no real good is ever done to their souls till a sinner sees himself as god sees him he will continue careless trifling and unmoved by all means we must labor to convince the unconverted man of sin to prick his conscience to open his eyes to show him himself to this end we must expound the length and breadth of god's holy law to this end we must denounce every practice contrary to that law however fashionable and customary this is the only way to do good never does a soul value the gospel medicine until it feels its disease never does a man see any beauty in christ as a saviour until he discovers that he is himself a lost and ruined sinner ignorance of sin is invariably attended by neglect of christ we should mark fifthly the uselessness of any religion which only consists of formality the samaritan woman when awakened to spiritual concern started questions about the comparative merits of the samaritan and jewish modes of worshipping god our lord tells her that true and acceptable worship depends not on the place in which it is offered but on the state of the worshipper's heart he declares the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this place nor at jerusalem worship the father he adds that true worshippers shall worship in spirit and in truth the principle contained in these sentences can never be too strongly impressed on professing christians we are all naturally inclined to make religion a mere matter of outward forms and ceremonies and to attach an excessive importance to our own practical manner of worshipping god we must beware of this spirit and especially when we first begin to think seriously about our souls the heart is the principal thing in all our approaches to god the lord looketh on the heart first samuel chapter sixteen verse seven 
the most gorgeous cathedral service is offensive in god's sight if all is gone through coldly heartlessly and without grace the feeblest gathering of three or four poor believers in a cottage to read the bible and pray is a more acceptable sight to him who searches the heart than the fullest congregation which is ever gathered in st peter's at rome we should mark lastly christ's gracious willingness to reveal himself to the chief of sinners he concludes his conversation with the samaritan woman by telling her openly and unreservedly that he is the saviour of the world i that speak to thee he says am the messiah nowhere in all the gospels do we find our lord making such a full avowal of his nature and office as he does in this place and this avowal be it remembered was made not to learned scribes or moral pharisees but to one who up to that day had been an ignorant thoughtless and immoral person dealings with sinners such as these form one of the grand peculiarities of the gospel whatever a man's past life may have been there is hope and a remedy for him in christ if he is only willing to hear christ's voice and follow him christ is willing to receive him at once as a friend and to bestow on him the fullest measure of mercy and grace the samaritan woman the penitent thief the philippian jailer the publican zacchaeus all are patterns of christ's readiness to show mercy and to confer full and immediate pardons it is his glory that like a great physician he will undertake to cure those who are apparently incurable and that none are too bad for him to love and heal let these things sink down into our hearts whatever else we doubt let us never doubt that christ's love to sinners passeth knowledge and that christ is as willing to receive as he is almighty to save what are we ourselves this is the question after all which demands our attention we may have been up to this day careless thoughtless sinful as the woman whose story we have been reading but yet there is hope he who talked with the samaritan woman at the well is yet living at god's right hand and never changes let us only ask and he will give us living water notes john chapter four verses seven to twenty six verse seven then cometh woman draw water the scarcity of water in the hot climates of the east makes drawing water from the nearest well an important part of the daily business of an eastern household we learn from other parts of scripture that it was a work ordinarily done by women genesis chapter twenty four verse eleven first samuel chapter nine verse eleven a well became naturally a common meeting-place for the inhabitants of a neighborhood and especially for the young people judges chapter five verse eleven the insinuation however of some writers as shotgun that the samaritan woman's motives in coming to the well were possibly immoral seems destitute of any foundation bad as her moral character evidently was we have no right to heap upon her more blame than is warranted by facts augustine regards this woman as a type of the gentile church not now justified but even now at the point to be justified i doubt whether we were meant by the holy ghost to take this view there is great danger in adopting such allegorical interpretations they insensibly draw away the mind from the plain lessons of scripture musculus remarks what a wonderful instance it is of sovereign grace that our lord should turn away from the learned scribes pharisees and priests to converse with and convert such a person as this woman 
to all appearance so utterly unworthy of notice he also observes how singularly our least movements are overruled by god's providence like rebecca and rachel the woman came to the well knowing nothing of the importance of that day's visit to her soul jesus saith give me to drink in this simple request of our lord there are four things deserving notice a it was a gracious act of spiritual aggression on a sinner he did not wait for the woman to speak to him but was the first to begin conversation b it was an act of marvellous condescension he by whom all things were made the creator of fountains brooks and rivers is not ashamed to ask a draught of water from the hand of one of his sinful creatures c it was an act full of wisdom and prudence he does not at once force religion on the attention of the woman and rebuke her for her sins he begins with a subject apparently indifferent and yet one of which the woman's mind was doubtless full he asks her for water d it was an act full of the nicest tact and exhibiting perfect knowledge of the human mind he asks a favor and puts himself under an obligation no line of proceeding it is well known to all wise people would be more likely to conciliate the woman's feelings toward him and to make her willing to hear his teaching simple as the request was it contains principles which deserve the closest attention of all who desire to do good to ignorant and thoughtless sinners the idea of euthymius that our lord pretended thirst in order to introduce conversation is unworthy of notice cyril thinks that our lord intended to make a practical protest against the exclusiveness of the jews by asking drink of a samaritan woman and to show her that he disapproved of the custom of his nation verse eight his disciples gone by meat this verse is an instance of our lord's general rule not to work a miracle in order to supply his own wants he who could feed five thousand with a few loaves and fishes when he willed was content to buy food like any other man it is an instance of his lowly mindedness the creator of all things though rich for our sakes became poor it ought to teach christians that they are not meant to be so spiritual as to neglect the management of money and a reasonable use of it for the supply of their wants god could feed his children as he fed elijah by a daily miracle but he knows it is better for our souls and more likely to call grace into exercise not to feed them so but to make them think and use means there is no real spirituality in being careless about money jesus himself allowed his disciples to buy the word rendered meat means nothing more than food or nourishment and must not be confined to flesh out of the sixteen places where it is used in the new testament there is not one where it necessarily signifies flesh the meat offerings of the old testament consisted of nothing but flour oil and incense leviticus chapter two verses one and two the meaning of the word meat in the english language has evidently changed since the last revision of the english bible the whole verse is an instance of one of those short parenthetical explanatory comments which are common in st john's gospel its object is to explain the circumstances of our lord being alone at the well and the fact that he did not ask a disciple to give him water verse nine then saith woman how is it a jew samaria this question implies that the woman was surprised at our lord speaking to her it was an unexpected act of condescension on his part 
and as such arrested her attention thus one point at any rate was gained it is a great matter if we can only get a careless sinner to give us a quiet hearing we shall soon see how our lord improved the opportunity how the woman knew our lord to be a jew is a matter of conjecture some think that she knew it by the dialect that he spoke some think that she knew it by the fringe upon his dress which he probably wore in conformity to the mosaic law numbers chapter fifteen verses thirty eight and thirty nine and which the samaritans very likely neglected one thing is very clear there was nothing in our lord's personal appearance when he was a man upon earth to distinguish him from any other jewish traveller who might have been found sitting at a well there was nothing eccentric or peculiar about his dress he looked like other men i venture the opinion that in the woman's question stress should be laid on the word woman she was not only surprised that a jewish man asked for a drink of a samaritan but also that he asked it of a woman the jews have no dealings samaritans this sentence is generally thought with much reason to be the explanatory comment of st john and not the words of the samaritan woman it certainly seems more natural to take it so the sentence should then be read as a parenthesis calvin thinks it is the woman's words but his reasons are not convincing the enmity between the jews and samaritans here referred to no doubt originated in the separation of the ten tribes under jeroboam and the establishment of the kingdom of israel it was exceedingly increased after the ten tribes were carried into captivity by the assyrians by the fact that the samaritans became mingled with foreigners whom the king of assyria sent to samaria from babylon and other places and so lost their right to be called pure jews second kings chapter seventeen verse one etc it was further aggravated by the opposition which the inhabitants of samaria made to the rebuilding of jerusalem after the return from the captivity of babylon in the days of ezra ezra chapter four verse ten etc in the days of our lord the jews seem to have gone into the extreme of regarding the samaritans as entirely foreigners and aliens from the commonwealth of israel when they told our lord that he was a samaritan and had a devil they meant the expression to convey the bitterest scorn and reproach john chapter eight verse forty eight it is clear however from the conversation in this chapter that the samaritans however mistaken on many points were not ignorant heathens they regarded themselves as descended from jacob they had a kind of old testament religion they expected the coming of messiah the bitter and exclusive spirit of the jews towards all other nations referred to in this verse is curiously confirmed by the language used about the jews by heathen writers at rome exclusiveness was noted as one among their peculiarities the immense difficulty with which even the apostles got over this exclusive feeling and went forth to preach to the gentiles is noticeable both in the acts and epistles acts chapter ten verse twenty eight chapter eleven verse two galatians chapter two verse twelve first thessalonians chapter two verse sixteen the utter absence of real charity and love among men in the days when our lord was upon earth ought not to be overlooked well would it be if men had never quarrelled about religion after he left the world quarrels among the crew of a sinking ship are not more hideous unseemly and irrational than the majority of quarrels among professors of religion a historian might truly apply st john's words to many a period in church history and say 
the romanists have no dealings with the protestants or the lutherans have no dealings with the calvinists or the calvinists have no dealings with the arminians or the episcopalians have no dealing with the presbyterians or the baptists have no dealing with those who baptize infants or the plymouth brethren have no dealings with anybody who does not join their company these things ought not so to be they are the scandal of christianity the joy of the devil and the greatest stumbling-block to the spread of the gospel the greek words translated have no dealings mean literally use not anything together with the samaritans pierce says the jews would not eat or drink with the samaritans would not drink out of the same cup or eat of the same dish with them this fact throws much light on the woman's surprise at our lord's request give me to drink verse ten jesus answered etc in this verse our lord proceeds to use the opportunity which the woman's question affords him he passes over for the present her expression of surprise at a jew speaking to a samaritan he begins by exciting her curiosity and raising her expectations by speaking of something within her reach which he calls living water the first step to take with a careless sinner after his attention has been arrested is to produce on his mind the impression that we can tell him of something to his advantage within his reach there is a certain vagueness in our lord's words which exhibit his consummate wisdom a systematic statement of doctrinal truth would have been thrown away at this stage of the woman's feeling the general and figurative language which our lord employed was exactly calculated to arouse her imagination and to lead her on to further inquiry the gift of god this expression is variously explained some think as augustine rupertus jansenius whitby and alford that it means the holy spirit that peculiar gift which it was the messiah's special office to impart to men in greater abundance than it had before been imparted acts chapter two verse thirty eight chapter ten verse forty five some think as brentius bucer musculnus colovius grotius and baradius that it means the gracious opportunity which god is graciously giving to thee if thou didst but know what a door of life is close to thee thou wouldst joyfully use it some think as euthymius toletus bullinger gauter hooker beza rollock lightfoot glacius dyke hindersom and gill that it means christ himself god's gracious gift to a sinful world if thou didst but know that god has actually given his only begotten son according to promise and that he has come into the world and that it is he who is speaking to thee thou wouldst at once ask of him living water some think that it means god's gift and especially his gift of grace which is now being proclaimed and made manifest to the world by the appearing on earth of his son see romans chapter five verse fifteen this seems to be the view of cyril lamp theophylact zwingle and calvin of these four views the last seems to me on the whole the most probable and satisfactory the first sounds strange and unlike the usual teaching of scripture if thou knowest the holy spirit thou wouldst have asked is an expression we can hardly expect at this period of our lord's ministry when the mission of the comforter had not yet been explained the second view seems hardly more natural than the first the third view is undoubtedly recommended by the fact that christ is frequently spoken of as god's greatest gift to the world if the woman had really known anything aright about messiah and had known that he was before her 
she would have asked of him living water. Nevertheless, it is a strong objection to this view, that it makes our Lord apparently say the same thing twice over, if thou knewest Christ, and that it is Christ who speaks. The last view makes the first clause general, if thou knewest the grace of God, and the second particular, if thou also knewest that the Saviour himself was with thee, thus both clauses receive a meaning. LIVING WATER The meaning of this expression, like the gift of God, is variously explained. Some, as Colovius and Chemnitius, seem to think it means the doctrine of God's mercy, pardon, cleansing, and justification. Others, such as Chrysostom, Augustine, Cyril, Theophylact, Calvin, Beza, Galter, Musculnus, and Ferris, think it means the Holy Spirit, renewing and sanctification. I doubt whether either view is quite correct. I am inclined with Bullinger and Rollock to regard the expression as a general figurative description of everything which it is Christ's office to bestow on the soul of man, pardon, peace, mercy, grace, justification, and sanctification. As water is cleansing, purifying, cooling, refreshing, thirst-satisfying to man's body, so are Christ's gifts to the soul. I think everything that a sinful soul needs is purposely intended under the general words, living water. It comprises not only the justifying blood which cleanses from all sin, but the sanctifying grace of the Spirit, by which we cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. Not only the inward peace, which is the result of pardon, but the sense of inward comfort, which is the companion of renewal of hearts. The idea of water, we should remember, is specially brought forward in some of the Old Testament promises of good things to come. See Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, chapter 44, verse 3, Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1, etc., Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 14, verse 8. A sprinkling of clean water was particularly mentioned as one of the things Messiah was to give. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. To an intelligent reader of the Old Testament the mention of living water would at once raise up the idea of Messiah's times. The word living, applied here to water, must not be pressed too far. It does not necessarily mean anything more than fresh, running waters. Thus it is said that Isaac's servant found a well of living waters. Genesis chapter 26 verse 19 See also Numbers chapter 19 verse 17, Canticles chapter 4 verse 15. There was undoubtedly a deep meaning in our Lord's words, and a tacit reference to the verse in Jeremiah, where God speaks of himself as the fountain of living waters, Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. Nevertheless, the first idea that the words would convey to the woman's mind would probably be no more than this, that he who sat before her had better, fresher, and more valuable water than that of the well. The fact is, that our Lord purposefully used a figurative general expression, in order to lead the woman's mind gently on. If he had said, He would have given thee grace and mercy, she would have been unprepared for such purely doctrinal language, and it would have called forth prejudice and dislike. There is a vast quantity of deep truth contained in this verse. It is rich in first principles, linked together in a most instructive chain. 1. Christ has living water to give to men. 2. If men would only ask, Christ would at once give. 3. Men do not ask, because they are ignorant. The verse condemns all who die unpardoned. 
they have not because they ask not they ask not because they are blind to their condition to remove this blindness and ignorance must be the first object we should aim at in dealing with thoughtless and unconverted man the notion of ambrose cyprian and rupertus that living water here means baptism is too monstrous to require refutation it is only a sample of the preposterous views of some of the fathers and their followers about the sacraments Benkel remarks on this verse of our lord's readiness to draw lessons of spiritual instruction from every object near him to the jews desiring bread he spoke of the bread of life john chapter six verse thirty three to the people at jerusalem at break of day he speaks of the light of the world referring probably to the rising sun john chapter eight verses two and twelve to the woman coming to draw water he speaks of living water verse eleven the woman saith etc the words of the woman in this and the following verse imply surprise curiosity and perhaps a slight sneer at any rate they show that her attention was arrested a strange jew at a well suddenly speaks to her about living water what could he mean was he in earnest or not with a woman's curiosity she desires to know sir the greek word so rendered is generally translated lord this leads some as chrysostom to think that the woman's heart was so far impressed now that she purposely used a term of respect and reverence we must not however lay too much stress on the word it is certainly translated sir in other places where inferiors speak to superiors matthew chapter thirteen verse twenty seven chapter twenty one verse thirty chapter twenty seven verse sixty three john chapter four verse forty nine chapter five verse seven chapter twelve verse twenty one chapter twenty verse fifteen revelation chapter seven verse fourteen yet it is difficult to see what other word the woman could have used in addressing a strange man without rudeness and discourtesy nothing to draw with the greek expression here is simply a substantive meaning an instrument for drawing water what it is we are left to conjecture Schleusner suggests from Nonus that it must mean a cup fastened to a rope. The well is deep. These words, according to the universal testimony of travellers at this day, are still literally true. The well is at least thirty yards deep, and to a person not provided with a rope, as the woman doubtless saw was our Lord's case, the water would be inaccessible. Whence, then, that living water? The Greek word here rendered that is simply the article commonly translated thee. It is like that prophet. John chapter 1 verse 21. The ignorance of the woman in thinking of nothing but material water naturally strikes us, yet it is nothing more than we see in many other instances in the Gospels. Nicodemus could not see any but a carnal meaning in the new birth. The disciples could not understand our Lord's having meat to eat unless it was literal meat. The Jews thought the bread from heaven was literal bread, John chapter three verse four, chapter four verse thirty three, chapter six verse thirty four. The natural heart of man always tries to put a carnal and material sense on spiritual expressions. Hence have arisen the greatest errors about the sacraments. Verse twelve, art thou greater? This question exhibits the woman's curiosity to know who the stranger before her could be. Who art thou? that thou speakest of living water it also savours of a sneer and incredulity dost thou mean to say 
that thou canst give me better and more abundant supplies of water than a well which the patriarch jacob found sufficient for himself and all his numerous company dost thou pretend to know of a better well art thou a poor weary traveller in all appearance so great a person that thou dost possess a better well than jacob possessed our father jacob gave us the well let it be noted that the woman carefully claimed relationship with jacob and called him our father though after all the intermixture of the samaritans with the heathen nations the relationship was not very easy of proof but it is common to find people shutting their eyes to difficulties when they want to prove a connection or relationship the advocates of an extreme view of apostolical succession seldom condescend to notice difficulties when they assert that episcopally ordained ministers can trace their order up to the apostles when it says that jacob gave the well there is probably a reference to the grant which jacob made to his son joseph of the district near the well from joseph came the tribe of ephraim to which no doubt the samaritan woman claimed to belong genesis chapter forty eight verse twenty two drink himself children cattle these words were doubtless said to show the goodness and abundance of the water did the stranger at the well really mean to say that he could give any better water Bucer on this verse remarks how the samaritans prided themselves on their relationship to jacob and the possession of his well while they made no effort to imitate his goodness and points out the tendency of superstition to the same thing in every age true piety he says does not consist in having jacob's well and jacob's land but jacob's spirit not in keeping the bones of the saints but in imitating their lives verse thirteen jesus answered etc in this and the following verse our lord proceeds to raise the desires of the woman by exalting the value of the living water of which he has spoken he still refrains from distinct statements of doctrinal truth he still adheres to the figurative expression water and yet he makes an advance and leads on the woman gently and almost imperceptibly to glorious spiritual things now for the first time he begins to speak of everlasting life whosoever drinketh this water thirst again it will be noted that our lord does not answer the woman's questions directly he keeps steadily to the one point he desires to fasten her mind on viz the infinite excellence of a certain living water which he had to give at first he reminds her of what she knew well by laborious experience the water of jacob's well might be good and plentiful but still he who drank of it was only satisfied for a few hours he soon thirsted again we cannot doubt that there was a deep latent thought in our lord's words in this sentence he would have us know that the waters of jacob's well are typical of all temporal and material good things they cannot satisfy the soul they have no power to fill the heart of an immortal creature like man he who only drinks of them is sure to thirst again some have thought that there is a tacit reference in these words to the woman's insatiable love of sin the similarity ought to be noticed between our lord's line of argument in this verse and the line he adopts in recommending to the jews the bread of life in the sixth chapter he showed the jews the superiority of the bread of life over the manna by the words your fathers did eat manna and are dead john chapter six verse forty nine just so in this place he shows the inferiority of the water of jacob's well to the living water by saying he that drinks of this water shall thirst again the two passages deserve a careful comparison 
Verse 14. Whoever drinketh never thirst. These words contain a precious promise, and declare a glorious truth of the gospel. The benefits of Christ's gifts are promised to every one who is willing to receive them, whosoever and whatsoever he may be. He may have been as bad as the Samaritan woman, but the promise is for him as well as for her. Whosoever drinketh shall never thirst. The declaration, shall never thirst, does not mean, shall never feel any spiritual want at all. It simply asserts the abiding and enduring nature of the benefits which Christ gives. He that drinks of the living water which Christ gives shall never entirely and completely lose the cleansing, purifying, and soul-refreshing effects which it produces. Our English translation of this sentence hardly gives the full sense of the Greek. Literally rendered, it would be, shall never thirst unto eternity. The same expression is used frequently in St. John's Gospel. See John chapter 6, verses 51 to 58, chapter 8, verse 51, chapter 10, verse 28, chapter 11, verse 26, chapter 14, verse 16. The water I give, well, everlasting life. To see the full meaning of this figurative sentence, it must be paraphrased. The meaning seems to be something of this kind. The gift of grace, mercy, and peace which I am ready to give shall be in the heart of him who receives it an ever-flowing source of comfort, satisfaction, and spiritual refreshment, continuing and flowing on, not only through this life, but unto life eternal. He that receives my gift of living water has a fountain opened in his soul of spiritual satisfaction, which shall neither be dried up in this life or the life to come, but shall flow on to all eternity." Let it be noted that the whole verse is a strong argument in favor of the doctrine of the perpetuity of grace and the consequent perseverance in the faith of believers. It is difficult to understand how the Armenian doctrine of the possibility of believers completely falling away and being lost can be reconciled with any natural interpretation of this verse. Zwingle thinks, with much probability, that the words, a fountain in him, point to the benefits which grace once received makes a man impart to others as well as enjoy himself see john chapter seven verse thirty eight rollock remarks on this verse let me say in a word what i feel you will find nothing either in heaven or in earth with which you will be satisfied and feel supplied except jesus christ alone with all that fullness of the godhead which dwells in him bodily poole says he who receiveth the Holy Spirit and the grace thereof, though he will be daily saying give, give, and continually desiring further supplies of grace, yet he shall never wholly want, never want any good thing that shall be needful for him. The seed of God shall abide in him, and his water shall be in him a spring supplying him until he comes to heaven. Verse 15. The woman saith, etc., in this verse, I think we see the first sparks of good in the woman's soul. Our Lord's words aroused a desire in her heart for this living water of which he had spoken. She does what our Lord said she ought to have done at first. She asks him to give her the water. Give me this water, that, thirst not, draw. The motives of the woman in making this request are variously explained. Some think as Musculus, Calvin, Bucer, Brentius, Galter, Lightfoot, Poole, and Dyke, that the request was made in a sarcastic and sneering spirit, as though she would say, Truly this water would be a fine thing, if we could get it. 
give it me if you have it to give some think as augustine cyril bullinger rollock hildersam jansenius and nephanius that the request was only the lazy indolent wish of one who was weary of this world's labour and yet could see nothing but the things of this world in our lord's sayings like the request of the jews evermore give us this bread john chapter six verse thirty four it is as though she would say anything to save me the trouble of coming to draw water would be a boon if you can do that for me do it as bengal says she wished to have this living fountain at her own house some think as chrysostom theophylact and euthymius that the request was really the prayer of an anxious soul aroused to some faint spiritual desires by the mention of eternal life hast thou eternal life to bestow give it to me i venture to think that none of these three views is quite correct the true motive of the request was probably a vague feeling of desire that the woman herself could hardly have defined it is useless to analyze and scrutinize too closely the first languid and imperfect desires that arise in souls when the spirit begins his work of conversion it is folly to say that the first movings of a heart towards god must be free from all imperfect motives and all mixture of infirmity the woman's motives in saying give me this water were probably mixed and indefinite material water was not out of her thoughts and yet she had probably some desires after everlasting life enough for us to know that she asked and received she sought and found our great aim must be to persuade sinners to apply to jesus and to say to him give me to drink if we forbid them to ask anything until they prove that they can ask in a perfect spirit we should do no good at all it would be as foolish to scrutinize the grammatical construction of an infant's cries as to analyze the precise motives of a soul's first breathings after god if it breathes at all and says give we ought to be thankful verse sixteen jesus saith go call husband hither this verse begins an entirely new stage in the history of the woman's conversion from this point we hear no more of living water figurative language is dropped entirely our lord's words become direct personal and plain the woman had asked at last for living water at once our lord proceeds to give it to her our lord's reasons for bidding the woman to call her husband have been variously interpreted some think that he only meant her to understand that he had spoken long enough to her a solitary woman and that before he proceeded further she must call her husband to be a witness of the conversation and to partake of the benefits he was going to confer this seems the view of chrysostom and theophylact others think with far more probability in my judgment that our lord's main object in naming the woman's husband was to produce in her mind conviction of sin and to show her his own divine knowledge of all things he knew that she had no husband and he purposely named him in order to touch her conscience he always knew the thoughts of those to whom he spoke and he knew in the present case what the effect of his words would be it would bring to light the woman's besetting sin it is as though he said thou dost ask me for living water thou dost at last express a desire for that great spiritual gift which i am able to bestow well then i begin by bidding thee know thyself and thy sinfulness i will show thee that i know thy spiritual disease and can lay my finger on the most dangerous ailment of thy soul go call thy husband and come hither 
let it be noted that the first draught of living water which our lord gave to the samaritan woman was conviction of sin that fact is a lesson for all who desire to benefit ignorant and careless sinners the first thing to be taught to such persons when once we have got their attention is their own sinfulness and their consequent need of a saviour no one values the physician until he feels his disease augustine thinks that when our lord said call thy husband he meant cause thine understanding to be forthcoming thy understanding is not with thee i am speaking after the spirit and thou hearest after the flesh i can see no wisdom in this fanciful idea verse seventeen the woman answered no husband these words were an honest and truthful confession so far as they went whether the woman wished it to be supposed that she was a widow it would perhaps be hardly fair to inquire theophylact and euthymius suggest that she did wish to deceive our lord the way in which our lord receives her declaration makes it probable that she did not profess to be a widow and very likely her dress showed that she was not in this point of view the honesty of her confession is noteworthy there is always more hope of one who honestly and bluntly confesses sin than a smooth-tongued hypocrite jesus said thou hast well said husband our lord's commendation of the woman's honest confession deserves notice it teaches us that we should make the best of an ignorant sinner's words an unskilled physician of souls would probably have rebuked the woman sharply for her wickedness if her words led him to suspect it our lord on the contrary says thou hast well said verse eighteen thou hast had five husbands many foolish and unseemly things have been written about this sentence which it is not worth while to bring forward of course it is utterly improbable that the woman had lost five husbands by death and had been five times a widow the more likely explanation is that she had been divorced and put away by several husbands in succession divorces were notoriously common among the jews and in all probability among the samaritans for very trivial causes in the case however of the woman before us the second clause of the verse before us makes it likely that she had been justly divorced for adultery augustine regards these five husbands as significant of the five senses of the body which are as five husbands by which the soul of the natural man is ruled i cannot think that our lord meant anything of the kind euthymius mentions another allegorical view making the woman to typify human nature and the five husbands five different dispensations and him with whom she now lived the mosaic law this seems to me simply absurd origen says much the same it is well to know what patristic interpretation is he whom hast not thy husband these words show plainly that the samaritan woman was living in adultery up to the very day when our lord spoke to her our lord's perfect knowledge of the woman's past and present life is very noteworthy it ought to remind us how perfectly he is acquainted with every transaction of our own lives from him no secrets are hid in that sayest thou truly there is a kindness very worthy of notice in these words wicked and abandoned as the samaritan woman was our lord deals gently and kindly with her and twice in one breath commends her confession thou hast well said in that thou sayest truly kindness of manner like this will always be found a most important point in dealing with the ungodly scolding and sharp rebuke however well deserved have a tendency to harden and shut up hearts to make people bolt their doors kindness on the contrary 
wins softens conciliates and disarms prejudice an unskilful soul physician would probably have ended his sentence by saying thou art a wicked woman and if thou dost not repent thou wilt be lost all this would have been true no doubt but how different our lord's grave and gentle remark thou sayest truly verse nineteen the woman saith i perceive prophet i think we see in this verse a great change in the samaritan woman's mind she evidently confesses the entire truth of what our lord had just said and turns to him as an anxious inquirer about her soul it is as though she said i perceive at last that thou art indeed no common person thou hast told me what thou couldst not have known if thou wert not a prophet sent from god thou hast exposed sins which i cannot deny and aroused spiritual concern which i would now fain have relieved now give me instruction let it be noted that the thing which first struck the samaritan woman and made her call jesus a prophet was the same that struck nathaniel viz our lord's perfect knowledge to call our lord a prophet at first sight may seem not much but it must be remembered that even after his resurrection the two disciples going to emmaus only described jesus as a prophet mighty in deed and word luke chapter twenty four verse twenty nine a clear knowledge of the divine nature of messiah seems to have been one of the points on which almost the whole jewish nation was ignorant even the learned scribes could not explain how messiah was to be david's lord and also david's son mark chapter twelve verse thirty seven verse twenty our fathers worshipped etc to see the full drift of this verse we must carefully remember the state of the samaritan woman's mind at this moment i think that she spoke under spiritual anxiety she was alarmed by having her sins suddenly exposed she found herself for the first time in the presence of a prophet she felt for the first time the necessity of religion but at once the old question between the jews and the samaritans arose before her mind how was she to know what was truth what was she to believe her own people said that the samaritan mode of worshipping god was correct the jews said that jerusalem was the only place where men ought to worship between these two conflicting opinions what was she to do the natural ignorance of almost all unconverted people when first aroused to thought about religion appears strikingly in the woman's words man's first idea is to attach great importance to the outward mode of worshipping god the first refuge of an awakened conscience is strict adherence to some outward form and zeal for the external part of religion the woman's readiness to quote the fathers and their customs is an instructive instance of man's readiness to make custom and tradition his only rule of faith our fathers did so is one of the natural man's favorite arguments calvin's comments on the expression fathers in this verse are very useful he remarks among other things none should be reckoned fathers but those who are manifestly the sons of god when the woman spoke of this mountain she doubtless meant the hill on which the rival temple of samaria was built to the bitter annoyance of the jerusalem jews it was said that this temple was first built in the days of nehemiah by sambalat and that his son-in-law the son of joida whom nehemiah chased from him was its first high priest nehemiah chapter thirteen verse twenty nine some have gone so far as to maintain that the hill gerizim at samaria was the hill on which abraham offered up isaac and that the words of the woman refer to this the more common opinion is that mount moriah at jerusalem was the place when the woman says 
ye say she doubtless includes the whole jewish nation of whom she regards our lord as a representative musculus baxter scott and barnes think that the woman in this verse desired to turn away the conversation from her own sins to a subject of public controversy and in this way to change the subject i am not however satisfied that this view is correct i prefer the view of brentius which i have already set forth that she was truly impressed by our lord's exposure of her wickedness and made a serious inquiry about the things needful to salvation she was aroused to seriousness and asked what was true religion her own nation said one thing the jews said another what was truth in short her words were only another form of the jailer's question what shall i do to be saved verse twenty one jesus saith woman believe me the calmness gravity and solemnity of these opening words are very noteworthy i tell you a great truth which i ask you to credit and believe jansenius thinks that our lord uses the expression believe me because the truth he was about to impart was so new and strange that the woman would be apt to think it incredible steer remarks that this is the only time our lord ever uses this expression believe me in the gospels the hour cometh the hour or time here spoken of means the time of the gospel the hour of the christian dispensation you shall neither this mountain jerusalem worship etc our lord here declares that under the gospel there was to be no more distinction of places like jerusalem the old dispensation under which men were bound to go up to jerusalem three times a year to attend the feasts and worship in the temple was about to pass away all questions about the superior sanctity of samaria or jerusalem would soon be at an end a church was about to be founded whose members would find access to the father everywhere and would need no temple service and no priests or sacrifices or altars in order to approach god it was therefore a mere waste of time to be disputing about the comparative claims of either samaria or jerusalem under the gospel all places would soon be alike it seems far from improbable that our lord referred in this verse to the prophecy of malachi in every place incense shall be offered to my name malachi chapter one verse eleven the utter passing away of the whole jewish system seems clearly pointed at in this verse to bring into the christian church holy places sanctuaries altars priests sacrifices gorgeous vestments and the like is to dig up that which has been long buried and to turn to candles for light under the noonday sun the favorite theory of the irvingites that we ought as far as possible in our public worship to copy the jewish temple services and ceremonial seems incapable of reconciliation with this verse calvin says by calling god the father in this verse christ seems indirectly to contrast him with the fathers whom the woman had mentioned and to convey this instruction that god would be common father to all so that he will be generally worshipped and without distinction of place or nation verse twenty two ye worship know not what in this verse our lord unhesitatingly condemns the religious system of the samaritans as compared with that of the jews the samaritans could show no scriptural authority no revelation of god commanding and sanctioning their worship whatever it was it was purely an invention of man which god had never formally authorized or accredited they had no warrant for believing that it was accepted 
they had no right to feel sure that their prayers praises and offerings were received in short all was uncertainty they were practically worshipping an unknown god meade remarks that the samaritan woman overlooked the object of worship in her question about the place you inquire concerning the place of worshipping but a far more important question is at issue between us viz the being to be worshipped respecting whom you are ignorant we know what we worship in contrast to the samaritan religious system our lord declares that the jews at any rate could show divine warrant and scriptural authority for all they did in their religion they could render a reason of their hope they knew whom they approached in their religious services salvation is of the jews our lord here declares that god's promises of a saviour and redeemer specially belong to the jerusalem jews they were the descendants of the tribe of judah and to them belonged the house and lineage of david on this point at any rate the samaritans had no right whatever to claim equality with the jews granting that the samaritans had any right to be called israelites they were of the tribe of ephraim from which it was nowhere said that messiah should spring and in truth the samaritans were of such mixed origin that they had no right to be called israelites at all i believe with olshausen that salvation in this verse was really intended to mean the saviour himself the use of the article in the greek is striking it is literally the salvation does not the saint to zacchaeus point the same way this day is salvation come to this house luke chapter nineteen verse nine the expression we in this verse is interesting it is a wonderful instance of our lord's condescension and one that stands almost alone he was pleased to speak of himself just in the light that he appeared to the woman as one of the jewish nation i and all other jews know what we worship the folly of supposing that ignorance is to be praised and commended in religion as the mother of devotion is strongly condemned in this verse christ would have christians know what they worship the testimony borne to the general truth of the religious system of the jews in this place is very striking corrupt and wicked as scribes and pharisees were jesus declares that the jewish religion was true and scriptural it is a mournful proof that a church may retain a sound creed and yet be on the high road to destruction hildersam has a long note which is well worth reading on the words salvation is of the jews considering the times in which he lived it shows singularly clear views of god's continual purposes concerning the jewish nation he sees in the words the great truth that all god's revelations to man in every age have been made through the jews verse twenty three the hour cometh and now is these words mean that the times of the gospel approach and indeed have already begun they have begun by the preaching of the kingdom of god they will be fully brought in by my death and ascension and the establishment of the new testament church true worshippers worship spirit and truth our lord here declares who alone would be considered true worshippers in the coming dispensation of the gospel they would not be merely those who worshipped in this place or in that place they would not be exclusively jews or exclusively gentiles or exclusively samaritans the external part of the worship would be of no value compared to the internal state of the worshippers they only would be counted true worshippers who worshipped in spirit and in truth 
The words, in spirit and in truth, are variously interpreted, and much has been written about them. I believe the simplest explanation to be this. The word spirit must not be taken to mean the Holy Spirit, but the intellectual or mental part of man, in contradistinction to the material or carnal part of man. This distinction is clearly marked in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 34, holy in body and in spirit. Worship in spirit is a heart worship in contradistinction to all formal, material, carnal worship, consisting only of ceremonies, offerings, sacrifices, and the like. When a Jew offered a formal meat offering with his heart far away, it was worship after the flesh. When David offered in prayer a broken and contrite heart, it was worship in spirit. Worship in truth means worship through the one true way of access to God, without the medium of the sacrifices or priesthood, which were ordained till Christ died on the cross. When the veil was rent, and the way into the holiest made manifest by Christ's death, then, and not till then, men worshipped in truth. Before Christ they worshipped through types and shadows and figures and emblems, after Christ they worshipped in truth. The spirit is opposed to flesh, truth to shadow. Spirit, in short, is heart service, contrasted with lip worship and formal devotion. Truth is the full light of the Christian dispensation, contrasted with the twilight of the law of Moses. The view I have endeavored to give is substantially that of Chrysostom and Euthymius. Carroll, quoted by Ford, says, in spirit regards the inward power, in truth the outward form. The first strikes at hypocrisy, the second at idolatry. The Father seeketh such, worship him. This is a remarkable sentence. I believe it to mean that the hour is come in which the Father has ordained from eternity that he will gather out of the world a company of true and spiritual worshippers. He is even now seeking out and gathering in such worshippers. The expression seeketh is peculiar. There is something like it in the sentence, The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It seems to show the exceeding compassion of the Father and His infinite willingness to save souls. He does not merely wait for men to come to Him. He seeks for them. It also shows the wide opening of God the Father's mercy under the gospel. He no longer confines His grace to the Jews. He now seeks and desires to gather in everywhere true worshippers out of every nation. The clause appears to me specially intended to encourage the Samaritan woman. Let her not trouble herself with difficulties about the comparative claims of the Samaritan and Jewish systems. Was she willing to be a spiritual worshipper? That was the one question which deserved her attention. Trapp observes, How should this fire up our hearts to spiritual worship, that God seeks, for such worshippers. Verse 24. God is a spirit. Our Lord here declares to the Samaritan woman the true nature of God. Let her cease to think that God was such a one as man, and that he could not be found, or approached, or addressed, like a mere earthly monarch, except at one particular place. Let her learn to have higher, nobler, and more exalted views of the being with whom sinners have to do, let her know this day that God was a spirit. The declaration before us is one of the most lofty and definite sayings about God's nature which is to be found in the whole Bible. 
that such a declaration should have been made to such a person as the samaritan woman is a wonderful instance of christ's condescension to define precisely the full meaning of the expression is past man's understanding the leading idea most probably is that god is an immaterial being that he dwelleth not in temples made with hands and that he is not like ourselves therefore absent from one place when he is present at another these things are all true but how little we can realize them cornelius alipati gives an excellent summary of the opinions of heathen philosophers on the nature of god in his commentary on this verse they worship must worship spirit truth our lord draws this broad conclusion from the statement of god's nature which he has just made if god is a spirit it behooves those who would worship him acceptably to worship in spirit and in truth it is unreasonable to suppose that he can like any worship which does not come from the heart or can be so well pleased with worship which is offered through types and ceremonies as with worship offered through the true way which he has provided and is now revealing the importance of the great principle laid down in this and the preceding verse can never be overrated any religious teaching which tends to depreciate heart worship and to turn christianity into a mere formal service or which tends to bring back jewish shadows ceremonies and services and to introduce them into christian worship is on the face of these remarkable verses most unscriptural and deserving of reprobation of course we must not admit the idea that in this and the preceding verses jesus meant to pour contempt on the ceremonial law which god himself had given but he plainly teaches that it was an imperfect dispensation given because of man's ignorance and infirmity as we give pictures to children in teaching them it was in fact a schoolmaster to christ galatians chapter three verse twenty four to want men to return to it is as absurd as to bid grown-up people to begin learning the alphabet by pictures in an infant school on the other hand as beza remarks we must not run into the extreme of despising all ordinances sacrifices and outward ceremonies in religion these things have their use and value however much they may be abused verse twenty five the woman saith i know messias christ etc this verse is an interesting one it shows the woman at last brought to the very state of mind in which she would be prepared to welcome a revelation of christ she had been told of living water and had expressed a desire for it she had been told her own sin and had been unable to deny it she had been told the uselessness of resting on any formal membership of the samaritan church and the necessity of spiritual and heart worship of god and now what can she say it is all true she feels she cannot gainsay it but what can she do to whom can she go whose teaching can she follow all she can do is to say that she knows messias is one day coming and that he will make all things clear and plain it is evident that she wishes for him she is uncomfortable and sees no relief for her newly raised perplexities unless messias should appear the mention of messias in this verse makes it clear that the samaritans were not altogether ignorant of the old testament and that there was an expectation of a redeemer of some kind among them as well as among the jews the existence of a general expectation of this sort throughout the east at the time when our lord appeared on earth is a fact to which even heathen writers have testified when the woman says 
he will tell us all things we must probably not inquire too closely into what she meant it is very likely that she had only a vague feeling that messias would remove all doubts and show all things needful to salvation chrysostom remarks on this verse the woman was made dizzy by christ's discourse and fainted at the sublimity of what he said and in her trouble saith i know that messias cometh wordsworth observes that the samaritan woman had a clearer knowledge of messiah's office than the jews generally showed she looked for him as a teacher they looked for him as a conquering king beza and a clark think that the words which is called christ in this verse are st john's parenthetical explanation of the word messias it is certainly rather unlikely that the woman would have used them in addressing a jew yet most commentators think that they were her words verse twenty six jesus saith i speak am he these words are the fullest declaration which our lord ever made of his own messiahship which the gospel writers have recorded that such a full declaration should be made to such a person as the samaritan woman is one of the most wonderful instances of our lord's grace and condescension related in the new testament at last the woman obtained an answer to one of her first questions art thou greater than our father jacob when the answer came it completely converted her soul rollock remarks on this verse how ready and willing christ is to reveal himself to a sinner's soul the very moment that this woman expressed any desire for messiah he at once revealed himself to her i am he quisnell observes it is a great mistake to suppose that the knowledge of the mysteries of religion ought not to be imparted to women by the reading of scripture considering this instance of the great confidence christ reposed in this woman by his manifestation of himself the abuse of the scriptures and the sin of heresies did not proceed from the simplicity of women but from the conceited learning of men in leaving the whole passage there are several striking points which ought never to be forgotten a our lord's mercy is remarkable that such a one as he should deal so graciously with such a sinner is a striking fact b our lord's wisdom is remarkable how wise was every step of his way in dealing with this sinful soul c our lord's patience is remarkable how he bore with the woman's ignorance and what trouble he took to lead her to knowledge d our lord's power is remarkable what a complete victory he won at last how almighty must that grace be which could soften and convert such a carnal and wicked heart we must never despise any soul after reading this passage none can be worse than this woman but christ did not despise her we must never despair of any soul after reading this passage if this woman was converted any one may be converted finally we must never contemn the use of all wise and reasonable means in dealing with souls there is a wisdom which is profitable to direct in approaching ignorant and ungodly people which must be diligently sought end of section sixteen section seventeen of expository thoughts on the gospel of st john volume one by j c ryle chapter four verses twenty seven to thirty christ's dealings marvellous 
grace and absorbing principle, true converts zealous to do good. John chapter 4, verses 27 to 30. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? or, Why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water-pot, and went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city, and came unto him. These verses continue the well-known story of the Samaritan woman's conversion. Short as the passage may appear, it contains points of deep interest and importance. The mere worldling, who cares nothing about experimental religion, may see nothing particular in these verses. To all who desire to know something of the experience of a converted person, they will be found full of food for thought. We see, firstly, in this passage, how marvelous in the eyes of man are Christ's dealings with souls. We are told that the disciples marveled that he talked with the woman. That their master should take the trouble to talk to a woman at all, and to a Samaritan woman, and to a strange woman at a well, when he was wearied with his journey. All this was wonderful to the eleven disciples. It was a sort of thing which they did not expect. It was contrary to their idea of what religious teachers should do. It startled them and filled them with surprise. The feeling displayed by the disciples on this occasion does not stand alone in the Bible. When our Lord allowed publicans and sinners to draw near to him and to be in his company, the Pharisees marveled. They exclaimed, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Luke chapter 15 verse 2. When Saul came back from Damascus, a converted man and a new creature, the Christians at Jerusalem were astonished. They believed not that he was a disciple. Acts chapter 9 verse 26. When Peter was delivered from Herod's prison by an angel, and brought to the door of the house where the disciples were praying for his deliverance, they were so taken by surprise that they could not believe it was Peter. When they saw him they were astonished. Acts chapter 12 verse 16. But why should we stop short in Bible instances? The true Christian has only to look around him in this world in order to see abundant illustrations of the truth before us. How much astonishment every fresh conversion occasions! What surprise is expressed at the change in the heart, life, tastes, and habits of the converted person! What wonder is felt at the power, the mercy, the patience, the compassion of Christ! It is now as it was eighteen hundred years ago. The dealings of Christ are still marvellous both to the church and to the world. If there was more real faith on the earth, there would be less surprise felt at the conversion of souls. If Christians believed more, they would expect more, and if they understood Christ better, they would be less startled and astonished when he calls and saves the chief of sinners. We should consider nothing impossible, and regard no sinner as beyond the reach of the grace of God. The astonishment expressed at conversions is a proof of the weak faith and ignorance of these latter days. The thing that ought to fill us with surprise is the obstinate unbelief of the ungodly, and their determined perseverance in the way to ruin. This was the mind of Christ. It is written that he thanked the Father for conversions, but he marveled at unbelief. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, Mark chapter 6, verse 6. We see, secondly, in this passage, 
how absorbing is the influence of grace when it first comes into a believer's heart we are told that after our lord had told the woman he was the messiah she left her water-pot and went her way into the city and said to the men come see a man which told me all things that i ever did she had left her home for the express purpose of drawing water she had carried a large vessel to the well intending to bring it back filled but she found at the well a new heart and a new object of interest she became a new creature old things passed away all things became new at once everything else was forgotten for the time she could think of nothing but the truths she had heard and the saviour she had found in the fullness of her heart she left her water-pot and hastened away to express her feelings to others we see here the expulsive power of the grace of the holy ghost grace once introduced into the heart drives out old tastes and interests a converted person no longer cares for what he once cared for a new tenant is in the house a new pilot is at the helm the whole world looks different all things have become new it was so with matthew the publican the moment that grace came into his heart he left the receipt of custom matthew chapter nine verse nine it was so with peter james and john and andrew as soon as they were converted they forsook their nets and fishing boats mark chapter one verse nineteen it was so with saul the pharisee as soon as he became a christian he gave up all his brilliant prospects as a jew in order to preach the faith he had once despised acts chapter nine verse twenty the conduct of the samaritan woman was precisely of the same kind for the time present the salvation she had found completely filled her mind that she never returned for her water-pot would be more than we have a right to say but under the first impression of new spiritual life she went away and left her water-pot behind conduct like that here described is doubtless uncommon in the present day rarely do we see a person so entirely taken up with spiritual matters that attention to this world's affairs is made a secondary matter or postponed and why is it so simply because true conversions to god are uncommon few really feel their sins and flee to christ by faith few really pass from death to life and become new creatures yet these few are the real christians of the world these are the people whose religion like the samaritan woman's tells on others happy are they who know something by experience of this woman's feelings and can say with paul i count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of christ happy are they who have given up everything for christ's sake or at any rate have altered the relative importance of all things in their minds if thine eye be single thy whole body shall be full of light philippians chapter three verse eight matthew chapter five verse twenty two we see lastly in this passage how zealous a truly converted person is to do good to others we are told that the samaritan woman went into the city and said to the men come see a man which told me all things that i ever did is not this the christ in the day of her conversion she became a missionary she felt so deeply the amazing benefit she had received from christ that she could not hold her peace about him just as andrew told his brother peter about jesus and philip told nathaniel that he had found messiah and saul when converted straightway preached christ so in the same way the samaritan woman said come and see christ she used no abstruse arguments she attempted no deep reasoning about our lord's claim to be the messiah 
she only said come and see out of the abundance of her heart her mouth spoke that which the samaritan woman here did all true christians ought to do likewise the church needs it the state of the world demands it common sense points out that it is right every one who has received the grace of god and tasted that christ is gracious ought to find words to testify of christ to others where is our faith if we believe that souls around us are perishing and that christ alone can save them and yet hold our peace where is our charity if we can see others going down to hell and yet say nothing to them about christ and salvation we may well doubt our own love to christ if our hearts are never moved to speak of him we may well doubt the safety of our own souls if we feel no concern about the souls of others what are we ourselves this is the question after all which demands our notice do we feel the supreme importance of spiritual things and the comparative nothingness of the things of the world do we ever talk to others about god and christ and eternity and the soul and heaven and hell if not what is the value of our faith where is the reality of our christianity let us take heed lest we awake too late and find that we are lost for ever a wonder to angels and devils and above all a wonder to ourselves because of our own obstinate blindness and folly notes john chapter 4 verses 27 to 30 verse 27 upon this the true idea contained in this expression seems to be at this point at this critical juncture in the conversation between our lord and the woman what the woman would have said next after our lord's marvellous discovery of himself we are left to conjecture but just as our lord said i am the messiah the disciples returned from buying food and their appearance stopped the conversation the woman's heart was probably too full and her mind too much excited to say more in the presence of witnesses and especially of strangers therefore no more was said and she withdrew the soul in the beginning of a work of grace shrinks from discovering its workings before strangers marveled talked with the woman i am inclined to think that these words would have been more correctly rendered talked with a woman there is no article in the original greek the wonder of the disciples was excited not so much by our lord talking to this woman as by his talking to a woman at all it is clear from rabbinical writings that there was a common opinion among the jews that both in understanding and religion women were an inferior order of beings to men this ignorant prejudice had most likely leavened the minds of the disciples and is probably referred to in this place of the woman's moral character it is not clear that the disciples could know anything at all Rupertus thinks that our lord by conversing openly with a samaritan woman wished to show his disciples by an example that the wall between jews and other peoples was to be broken down by the disciple just as he taught peter the same lesson after his ascension by the vision of the sheet full of clean and unclean beasts acts chapter ten verses eleven to fifteen he thinks that the wonder of the disciples arose from the same jewish prejudice against intercourse with uncircumcised gentiles which appears so strongly in after times lightfoot shotgun and thullock quote proverbial sayings from rabbinical writers showing the jewish feeling about women the following are instances he who instructs his daughter in the law plays the fool 
do not multiply discourses with a woman let no one talk with a woman in the street no not with his own wife whitby also says from buxtorf that the rabbins say that talking with a woman is one of the six things which make a disciple impure no man said what seekest why talkest etc we are left to conjecture whether both these questions apply to our lord or whether the first apply to the woman what seekest thou of him and the second to our lord why talkest thou with her the point is of no particular importance to me however it appears that both questions apply to christ no man said what art thou seeking from her why art thou talking with her grotius suggests that the disciples supposed our lord might have been asking meat or drink from the samaritan woman and meant why seekest thou any meat or drink from her i venture to doubt whether both questions had not better have been translated alike what art thou seeking from her what art thou talking about with her the greek word is the same which our translators have rendered what in the first question and why in the second the expression no man said seems to imply that no man ventured to ask any questions what was our lord's reasons for talking with the woman it is not very clear why the sentence is introduced the object probably is as cyro and chrysostom remark to show us the deep reverence and respect with which the disciples regarded our lord in all his actions even at this early period of his ministry it also shows us that they sometimes thought things about him to which they dared not give expression and saw deeds of his which they could not understand but were content silently to wonder at them there is a lesson for us in their conduct when we cannot understand the reason of our lord's dealings with souls let us hold our peace and try to believe that there are reasons which we shall know one day a good servant in a great house must do his own duty and ask no questions a young student of medicine must take many things on trust verse twenty eight the woman left water-pot the greek word here rendered water-pot is the same that is used in the account of the miracle at cana in galilee it does not mean a small drinking vessel but a large jar such as women in eastern countries would carry on their head we can therefore well understand that if the woman wished to return in haste to the city she would have left her water-pot so large a vessel could not be carried quickly whether empty or full the mind of the woman in leaving her water-pot seems to me clear and unmistakable she was entirely absorbed in the things which she had heard from our lord's mouth she was anxious to tell them without delay to her friends and neighbors she therefore postponed her business of drawing water for which she had left her house as a matter of secondary importance and hurried off to tell others what she had been told the sentence is deeply instructive lightfoot thinks beside this that the woman left her water-pot out of kindness to our lord that jesus and his disciples might have wherewithal to drink went her way city the greek word rendered went her way means simply departed or went the city must of course mean sikar saith the men we must not suppose that the woman spoke to the men only and not to her own sex but it is probable that the men of the place would be the first persons she would see and that the women would not be in the streets but at home moreover it is not unlikely that the expression is meant to show us the woman's zeal and anxiety to spread the good tidings 
she did not hesitate to speak to men though she well knew that anything a woman might say about religion was not likely to command attention cyril on this verse remarks the power of christ's grace he began by bidding the woman to go and call her husband the end of the conversation which ensued was her going and calling all the men of the city to come and see Christ. Verse 29. Come, see a man. The missionary spirit of the woman, in this verse, deserves special notice. Having found Christ herself, she invites others to come and be acquainted with him. Origen calls her the Apostle of the Samaritans. Let it be noted that her words are simple in the extreme she enters into no argument she only asks the men to come and see this after all is often the best way of dealing with souls a bold invitation to come and make trial of the gospel often produces more effect than the most elaborate arguments and support of its doctrines most men do not want their reasons convinced so much as their will bent and their conscience aroused a simple-minded hearty unlearned young disciple will often touch hearts that would hear an obtuse argument without being moved this fact is most encouraging to all believers who try to do good all cannot argue but all believers may say come and see christ if you would only look at him and see him you would soon believe Veradius remarks what a practical illustration the woman affords of one of the concluding sentences of revelation let him that heareth say come revelation chapter twenty two verse seventeen the samaritan woman having heard said come and the result was that many souls came and took the water of life freely cyril remarks the difference between the woman's conduct and that of the servant who buried his talent in the ground she received the talent of the good tidings of the gospel and at once put it out at interest chrysostom remarks the wisdom of the woman she did not say, come, believe, but come, see, a gentler expression than the other, and one which more attracted them. Told me all things ever I did. These words must be taken with some qualifications. Of course they cannot mean that our Lord had literally told the woman all things that ever she did in her life. That would have been physically impossible in the space of a single afternoon. The probable meaning is, he has told me all the principal sins that I have committed. He has shown a perfect knowledge of the chief events of my life. He has shown such thorough acquaintance with my history that I doubt not he could have told me anything I ever did. Some allowance must probably be made for the warm and excited feelings of the woman when she spoke these words. She used hyperbolical and extravagant language, under the influence of these feelings, which she would probably not have used in a calm state of mind and which we must therefore not judge too strictly. Moreover, as Poole remarks, it admits of doubt whether our Lord may not have spoken of other things in the conversation which St. John has not been inspired to record. Let it be noted that the Samaritan woman, in saying that our Lord had told her all things she had ever done, very probably referred to the common opinion about Messiah's omniscience. The rabbinical writers, according to Lightfoot, specially applied to Messiah the words of Isaiah, He shall make him quick of understanding in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3. Her words, therefore, were a well-known argument that our Lord must be the Christ, and her object in using them would be thoroughly understood. Is not this the Christ? 
the Greek word so rendered would be translated with equal correctness, Is this the Christ? Can this be the Christ? A similar form of interrogative sentence is found in thirteen other places in the New Testament. In twelve of them the interrogative is used without not, viz. Matthew chapter 7 verse 16, chapter 26 verses 22 and 25, Matthew chapter 4 verse 21, chapter 14 verse 9, Luke chapter 6 verse 39, John chapter 7 verse 31, chapter 8 verse 22, chapter 18 verse 35, Acts chapter 10 verse 47, Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17, James chapter 3 verse 11. In only one place is the interrogative used with not, Matthew chapter 12 verse 23. I am inclined on the whole to think that not would have been better omitted in the sentence before us. Euthymius takes this view. The value of the questions, if we want to do good to souls, is well illustrated in this verse. A question often sets working a mind which would be utterly unmoved by an affirmation. It drives the mind to exertion, and by a gentle compulsion arouses it to think. Men are far less able to go to sleep under religious teaching when they are invited to answer a question. The number of questions in the New Testament is a striking and instructive fact. Had the woman said, This is the Christ, she might have excited prejudice and dislike. By asking, Is this the Christ, she got the men to inquire and judge for themselves. Verse 30. They went out of the city. This sentence is full of encouragement to all who tried to do good to souls. The words of one single woman were the means of arousing a whole city to go forth and inquire about Christ. We must never despise the smallest and meanest efforts. We never know to what the least beginnings may grow. The grain of mustard seed at Sychar was the word of a feeble woman. Come and see. Especially we ought to observe the encouragement the verse affords to the efforts of women, a woman may be the means, under God, of founding a church. The first person baptized by Paul in Europe was not a man, but a woman, Lydia, the seller of purple. Let women never suppose that men only can do good. Women also, in their way, can evangelize as really and truly as men. Every believing woman who has a tongue can speak to others about Christ. The Samaritan woman was far less learned than Nicodemus, but she was far bolder, and so did far more good. And came unto him. Perhaps the sentence would be more literally rendered, were coming, or beginning to come to him. It was while they were coming that the conversation which immediately follows, between Christ and his disciples, took place, and perhaps it was the sight of the crowd coming which made our Lord say some of the things that he did. Calvin remarks on this part of the woman's history, that some may think her blamable, in that, while she is still ignorant and imperfectly taught, she goes beyond the limits of her faith. I reply that she would have acted inconsiderately if she had assumed the office of a teacher, but when she desires nothing more than to excite her fellow-citizens to hear Christ speaking, we will not say that she forgot herself, or proceeded further than she had a right to do. She merely does the office of a trumpet or a bell, to invite others to come to Christ." The concluding verse shows us more forcibly that ministers and teachers of religion ought never to be above taking pains and trouble with a single soul. A conversation with one person was the means of leading a whole city to come and hear Christ, and resulted in the salvation of many souls. 
Cornelius Lepidi, at this point of his commentary, gravely informs us that the name of the Samaritan woman was Photina, that after her conversion she preached the gospel at Carthage, and that she suffered martyrdom there on the 20th of March, on which day the Romish martyrology makes special mention of her name. He also tells us that her head is kept as a relic at Rome, in the Basilica of St. Paul, and that it was actually shown to him there. It is well to know what ridiculous and lying legends the Church of Rome palms upon Roman Catholics as truths, while she withholds from them the Bible. End of section 17section eighteen of expository thoughts on the gospel of st john volume one by j c ryle chapter four verses thirty one to forty two christ's seal to do good encouragement to those who labor for christ men led to christ in various ways john chapter four verses thirty one to forty two in the meanwhile his disciples prayed him saying master eat but he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say ye not, There are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth, and he that reapeth, may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, One soweth, and another reapeth. I sent you to reap, that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that ever I did. They besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. We have for one thing in these verses an instructive pattern of zeal for the good of others. We read that our Lord Jesus Christ declares, My meat is to do the will of him which sent me, and to finish his work. To do good was not merely duty and pleasure to him. He counted it as his food, meat, and drink. Job, one of the holiest Old Testament saints, could say that he esteemed God's word more than his necessary food. Job chapter 23, verse 15. The great head of the New Testament church went even further, he could say the same of God's work. Do we do any work for God? Do we try, however feebly, to set forward His cause on earth, to check that which is evil, to promote that which is good? If we do, let us never be ashamed of doing it with all our heart, and soul, and mind, and strength. Whatsoever our hand finds to do for the souls of others, let us do it with our might. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10 the world may mock and sneer, and call us enthusiasts. The world can admire zeal in any service but that of God, and can praise enthusiasm on any subject but that of religion. Let us work on unmoved. Whatever men may say and think, 
we are walking in the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us, besides this, take comfort in the thought that Jesus Christ never changes. He that sat by the well of Samaria, and found it meat and drink to do good to an ignorant soul, is always in one mind. High in heaven at God's right hand he still delights to save sinners, and still approves zeal and labor in the cause of God. The work of the missionary and the evangelist may be despised and ridiculed in many quarters, but while man is mocking, Christ is well pleased. Thanks be to God, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and for ever. We have, for another thing in these verses, strong encouragement held out to those who labor to do good to souls. We read that our Lord described the world as a field white for the harvest, and then said to his disciples, He that reapeth, receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. Work for the souls of men is undoubtedly attended by great discouragements. The heart of natural man is very hard and unbelieving. The blindness of most men to their own lost condition and peril of ruin is something past description. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 no one can have any just idea of the desperate hardness of men and women until he has tried to do good. No one can have any conception of the small number of those who repent and believe until he has personally endeavored to save some. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. To suppose that everybody will become a true Christian who is told about Christ and entreated to believe is mere childish ignorance. Few there be that find the narrow way. The laborer for Christ will find the vast majority of those among whom he labors unbelieving and impenitent in spite of all that he can do. The many will not turn to Christ. These are discouraging facts, but they are facts, and facts that ought to be known. The true antidote against despondency in God's work is an abiding recollection of such promises as that before us. There are wages laid up for faithful reapers. They shall receive a reward at the last day, far exceeding anything they have done for Christ, a reward proportioned not to their success, but to the quantity of their work. They are gathering fruit, which shall endure when this world has passed away, fruit in some souls saved, if many will not believe, and fruit in evidences of their own faithfulness to be brought out before assembled worlds. Do our hands ever hang down, and our knees wax faint? Do we feel disposed to say, My labor is in vain, and my words without profit? Let us lean back at such seasons on this glorious promise. There are wages yet to be paid. There is fruit yet to be exhibited. We are a sweet savor of Christ, both in them that are saved and in them that perish. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 Let us work on. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Psalm 126, verse 6. One single soul saved shall outlive and outweigh all the kingdoms of the world. We have, lastly, in these verses, a most teaching instance of the variety of ways by which men are led to believe Christ. We read that many of the Samaritans believed on Christ for the saying of the woman. But this is not all. We read again, many more believed because of Christ's own word. In short, 
some were converted through the means of the woman's testimony and some were converted by hearing christ himself the words of st paul should never be forgotten there are diversities of operations but it is the same god which worketh all in all first corinthians chapter twelve verse six the way in which the spirit leads all god's people is always one and the same but the paths by which they are severally brought into that road are often widely different there are some in whom the work of conversion is sudden and instantaneous there are others in whom it goes on slowly quietly and by imperceptible degrees some have their hearts gently opened like lydia others are aroused by violent alarm like the jailer at philippi all are finally brought to repentance toward god faith toward our lord jesus christ and holiness of conversation but all do not begin with the same experience the weapon which carries conviction to one believer's soul is not the one which first pierces another. The arrows of the Holy Ghost are all drawn from the same quiver, but he uses sometimes one and sometimes another, according to his sovereign will. Are we converted ourselves? This is the one point to which our attention ought to be directed. Our experience may not tally with that of other believers, but that is not the question. Do we feel sin? hate it and flee from it do we love christ and rest solely on him for salvation are we bringing forth fruits of the spirit in righteousness and true holiness if these things are so we may thank god and take courage notes john chapter 4 verses 31 to 42 verse 31 in the meanwhile this expression means during that time when the Samaritans were coming out of the city to the well, between the time when the woman went her way and the time when her fellow countrymen, aroused by her testimony, appeared at the well, it is highly probable that they were already in sight. Prayed The Greek word so rendered is remarkable. It is frequently used to convey the idea of asking or making inquiry. It is a curious fact that it is not used in describing any person's address to God in prayer except in the case of our lord jesus christ john chapter fourteen verse sixteen chapter sixteen verse twenty six chapter seventeen verses nine fifteen and twenty there is one remarkable instance where it seems to be used in describing a believer's prayer first john chapter five verse sixteen but this instance stands so entirely alone that it is probable the meaning is not pray but make curious inquiry master eat the difference between our lord and his disciples appears here in a striking manner their weak minds were preoccupied with the idea of food and bodily sustenance his heart was filled with the great object of his ministry doing good to souls it is a striking illustration of a difference that may frequently be seen between a believer of great grace and a believer of little grace the latter with the best possible intentions, will often attach an importance to bodily and temporal things, with which the strong believer will feel no sympathy. Verse 32. I have meat, etc. The meaning of our Lord's words in this verse must evidently be figurative. He had soul nourishment and soul sustenance, of which his disciples were ignorant. He found such refreshment in doing good to ignorant souls, that for the time present he did not feel bodily hunger. There is no necessity for supposing that our Lord referred to any miraculous supply of his bodily wants in this place. 
his words appear to me only to indicate that he found such delight and comfort in doing good to souls that it was as good as meat and drink to him many of his holiest servants in every age i believe could testify much the same the joy and happiness of spiritual success has for the time lifted them above all bodily wants and supplied the place of material meat and drink i see no reason why this may not have been the case with our lord he had a body in all respects constituted like our own the idea of some writers that these words show that our lord's thirst was only stimulated and pretended seems to me utterly unworthy of notice the application of the words which every believer ought to endeavor to make to himself is familiar to every well-instructed christian he has supplies of spiritual nourishment and support which are hidden and unknown to the world these supplies he ought to use at all times and specially in times of sorrow and trial verse thirty three therefore said one to another etc these words seem to have been spoken privately or whispered one to another by the disciples their inability to put any but a carnal sense on their master's words has already been remarked in slowness to see a spiritual sense in his language they do not appear at all unlike nicodemus and the samaritan woman what wonder is it says augustine if the woman could not understand our lord speaking about living water when the disciples could not understand him speaking about meat the original greek of the expression hath any man brought him aught to eat is remarkable there is a negative left out in our translation it seems to show that the question of the woman at verse twenty nine would have been better rendered is this the christ can this be the christ verse thirty four jesus saith etc the leading idea of this verse is that doing god's will and finishing god's work was so so refreshing and pleasant to our lord that he found it equivalent to meat and drink the greek expression rendered to do and to finish would have been more literally rendered that i should do and that i should finish but there can be little doubt as weiner remarks that the language is intended to have an infinitive sense precisely the same construction is employed in another remarkable place john chapter seventeen verse three it seems matter of regret that our translators did not render that verse as they have rendered the verse before us it should have been this is life eternal to know thee etc the will of god which it was christ's meat to do must mean god's will that salvation by faith in a saviour should be proclaimed and a door of mercy set wide open to the chief of sinners it is my meat says our lord to do that will and to proclaim to every one with whom i speak that whosoever believeth on the son shall not perish the view that it simply means my meat is to obey god's commandments and do what he has told me to do appears to me to fall short of the full meaning of the expression the leading idea seems to me to be specially god's will about proclaiming salvation by christ compare john chapter six verses thirty nine and forty the work of god which it was christ's meat to finish must mean that work of complete fulfilment of a saviour's office which christ came on earth to perform and that obedience to god's law which he came to render it is my meat says our lord to be daily doing that great work which i came into the world to do for man's soul to be daily preaching peace and daily fulfilling all righteousness compare john chapter seventeen verse four
the utter unlikeness between christ and all ministers of the gospel who perform their duties in a mere perfunctory way and care more for the world and its pleasures or gains than for saving souls is strikingly brought out in this and the preceding verse how many professing teachers of religion know nothing whatever of the spirit and habits of mind which our lord here displays it can never be said of hunting shooting ball-going card-playing farming clergymen that it is their meat and drink to do god's will and finish his work with what face will they meet christ in the day of judgment cyril says on this verse we learn from hence how great is the love of god towards men he calls the conversion of lost people his meat verse thirty five say ye not etc this saying is interpreted in two different ways some think as origen rupertus brentius biza jensenius cyril lightfoot lampa suicer and many others that our lord really meant that there were four literal months to harvest at the time when he spoke and that as the harvest began about may he spoke in february the sense would then be ye say at this time of the year that it will be harvest in four months but i tell you there is a spiritual harvest already before you if you will only lift up your eyes and see it others think as did you mondanatus maldonatus colovius whitby shotgun pierce titman steer alford barnes and thulock that our lord only meant that it was a proverbial saying among the jews four months between seed-time and harvest and that he did not mean the words to be literally taken the sense would then be ye have a common saying that it is four months from seed-time to harvest but i tell you that in spiritual works the harvest ripens far more quickly behold those samaritans coming out already to hear the word the very day that seed has been sown among them the fields are already white for harvest either of the above views makes good sense and good divinity yet on the whole i prefer the second view viz that our lord quoted a proverb to suppose that he really meant that there were literally four months to pass away before harvest appears to me to involve serious chronological difficulties it necessitates the assumption that at least three-quarters of a year had passed away since the passover when our lord purified the temple john chapter two verse twenty three no doubt this possibly may have been the case but it does not appear to me probable in addition we must remember that our lord on another occasion referred to a proverbial saying about the weather beginning as much as he does here ye say matthew chapter sixteen verse three moreover in this very passage he quotes a proverb about one sowing and another reaping within two verses the expression therefore say ye not seems to me to point to a proverbial saying much more than to a fact the antithesis to it is the i say which immediately follows calvin says by this expression do you not say christ intended indirectly to point out how much more attentive the minds of men are to earthly than to heavenly things for they burn with so intense a desire of harvest that they carefully reckon up months and days while it is astonishing how drowsy and indolent they are in gathering the heavenly wheat cornelius Alipede conjectures that the disciples had been talking to one another about the prospects of harvest as they came to the well and that our lord knowing the conversation referred to it by the words do you not say lift up eyes look fields white harvest 
there can be little doubt that this saying must be interpreted figuratively the sense is there is a harvest of souls before you ready to be gathered in the same figure is used elsewhere matthew chapter nine verse thirty seven luke chapter ten verse thirty two some think as chrysostom that when our lord said behold lift up your eyes look he spoke with a special reference to the crowd of samaritans whom he saw coming from the city to the well if this be so it is hard to suppose that he first began conversation with the woman at six o'clock in the evening others think that our lord spoke these words with reference to the whole world especially the jewish nation at the time of his ministry they were so ready and prepared for the preaching of the gospel that they were like a field white for harvest the expression lift up your eyes is used elsewhere in scripture when mental attention is being called to something remarkable see isaiah chapter forty nine verse eighteen chapter sixty verse four genesis chapter thirteen verses fourteen and fifteen i am disposed to think that both views are correct our lord wished his disciples to notice that both at samaria and elsewhere the minds of men were everywhere ready to receive the message of the gospel in an unusual degree let them mark how willing the multitude was everywhere to listen to the truth let them know that everywhere as in the apparent hopeless fields of samaria they would find a harvest of souls ready to be reaped if only they would be reapers chrysostom on this verse remarks christ leads his disciples as his custom is from low things to high fields and harvests here express the great number of souls which are ready to receive the word the eyes are both spiritual and bodily ones for they saw a great multitude of samaritans now approaching this expectant crowd he calls very suitably white fields for as the corn when it grows white is ready for harvest so were those ready for salvation but why does he not say all this in direct language because by making use of objects around them he gave great vividness and power to his words and also caused his discourse to be more pleasant and sink deeper into their memories verse thirty six he that reapeth etc this verse seems to me to show that our lord is speaking generally of the field of this world and of the whole work which his apostles would have to do in it not only in samaria but to the ends of the earth the verse is a general promise for encouragement of all laborers of christ the full meaning of it can hardly be brought out without a paraphrase the reaper of the spiritual harvest has a far more honorable and satisfactory office than the reaper of the natural harvest he receives wages and gathers fruit not for this life only but for the life to come the wages that he receives are eternal wages a crown of glory that fadeth not away first peter chapter five verse four the fruit that he gathers is eternal fruit souls plucked from destruction and saved for evermore see daniel chapter twelve verse three john chapter fifteen verse sixteen and first corinthians chapter nine verse seventeen burkitt and several other writers call attention to the fact that the harvestman's wages are much more than the wages of any other laborer and hence draw the conclusion that no christian will receive so glorious a reward as the man who labors to win souls to christ that both he soweth reapeth rejoice together these words appear to me to refer to the common joy there will be in heaven among all who have labored for christ when the whole harvest of saved souls is finally gathered in the old testament prophets and john the baptist who sowed will all rejoice together with the apostles who reaped 
The results of the spiritual harvest are not like those of the natural harvest, temporal, but eternal, so that a day will come when all who have labored for it in any way, either by sowing or reaping, will sit down and rejoice together to all eternity. Here in this world the sower sometimes does not live to see the fruit of his labor, and the reaper who gathers in the harvest rejoices alone. But work done in the spiritual harvest is eternal work, and consequently both sowers and reapers are sure at last to rejoice together, and to see the fruit of their toil. Let it be noted that in heaven there will at the last be no jealousy or envy among Christ's laborers. Some will have been sowers, and some will have been reapers, but all will have done that part of the work allotted to them, and will finally rejoice together. Envious feelings will be absorbed in common joy. Let it be noted that in doing work for Christ and laboring for souls there are sowers as well as reapers. The work of the reaper makes far more show than the work of the sower, yet it is perfectly clear that if there was no sowing there would be no reaping. It is of great importance to remember this. The church is often disposed to give an excessive honor to Christ's reapers and to overlook the labors of Christ's sowers. Verse 37. Herein that saying true etc etc our lord here quotes a proverbial saying which appears to me to confirm the view i have already maintained that the expression of the thirty-fifth verse say ye not there are yet four months etc refers to a proverb the phrase herein means literally in this and seems to me to refer to the verse which immediately follows that common saying one soweth and another reapeth is made good in this way is fulfilled by this circumstance is verified in the following manner, viz., I send you to reap, etc. The meaning of the proverb is plain. It is a common saying among men that it often falls to one to sow the field, and to another to reap it. The sower and the reaper are not always the same person. The frequent use of proverbial sayings in the New Testament deserves notice. It shows the value of proverbs, and the importance of teaching them to children and young people, a pointed proverb is often remembered when a long moral lesson is forgotten. Verse 38. I sent you to reap, etc. Our Lord here states the manner in which the proverbial saying of the preceding verse is true. He tells the apostles that they were sent to reap a spiritual harvest on which they had bestowed no labor. Other men had labored, viz., the prophets of the Old Testament and John the Baptist they had broken up the ground, they had sowed the seed. The result of their labor was that the minds of men in the apostles' times were prepared to expect the Messiah, and the apostles had only to go forth and proclaim the glad tidings that Messiah was come. Pierce maintains the strange notion that our Lord in this verse only means, I send you away into the city to buy meat. While you were absent I sowed spiritual seed in the heart of a Samaritan woman. She is now gone to call others." These and many more will be the harvest which you will reap, without having bestowed any labor on it. This interpretation seems to me quite untenable. The past tense in this verse, I have sent, is used as a grammarian would say, proleptically. It means, I do send you. Such a use of the past tense is common in Scripture, and especially when God speaks of a thing about to be done. With God there is no uncertainty when he undertakes a thing, it may be regarded as done and finished, because in his counsels it is certain to be finished. Our Lord's meaning is, I send you throughout Samaria, Galilee, and Judea, 
to reap the fruit of the labors of the prophets and john the baptist they have sowed and you now have only to reap some think as steer and alford that when our lord said other men have labored he referred rather to himself than to the prophets i am unable to see this it appears to me a forced and unnatural interpretation i hold decidedly with chrysostom cyril theophylact calvin zwingle melanchthon brentius lampa and poole that it applies principally to the law and prophets if the prophets were not the sowers saith augustine whence had that saying come to the woman i know that messiah cometh origen says do not moses and elias the sowers rejoice with the reapers peter james and john when they saw the glory of the son of god at the transfiguration theophylact sees in this verse a strong argument against the heretical view of marconianites manichees and others that the new testament is contrary to the old here the prophets and apostles are spoken of together as laborers under one common master in one common field the idea propounded by Bucer that our lord alludes here to heathen philosophers as well as the prophets seems to me unwarrantable and unsafe many samaritans believed about the exact nature of the belief mentioned here and in the forty-first verse we have no materials for forming an opinion whether it was only an intellectual belief that christ was the messiah or whether it was that true faith of the heart which justifies a sinner before god we are left to conjecture the more probable opinion appears to be that it was true faith though very weak and unintelligent like that of the apostles themselves it is a strong confirmation of this view that when philip after the day of pentecost went down to samaria and preached christ his preaching was received with joy and many were baptized both men and women acts chapter eight verses five to twelve the gospel was received without prejudice and embraced at once as an acknowledged truth for saying woman testified etc these words show the importance of merely human testimony to christ's gospel the word of one weak woman was made the instrumental means of belief to many souls there was nothing remarkable in the woman's word it contained no elaborate reasoning and no striking eloquence it was only a hearty earnest testimony of a believing heart yet god was pleased to use it in the conversion of souls we must never despise the use of means if the woman had not spoken the samaritans would not have been converted above all we must never despise means because of their apparent weakness feebleness and inaptness to do good god can make the weakest instruments powerful to pull down the strongholds of sin and satan just as he made david's sling and stone prevail over goliath theophylact points out that the samaritan woman's past wicked life was well known to her fellow-citizens and that their attention must have been aroused by her publicly proclaiming that she had found one who knew her former life although a stranger they rightly concluded that he must be no common person melanchthon remarks that the belief which resulted from the testimony of a woman in this case is a clear proof that it is not absolutely necessary to have regular ministerial orders in order to do good to souls and that episcopal orders are not absolutely needful in order to give effect to the word when spoken verse forty so when samaritans came besought tarry etc the desire of the samaritans for instruction is shown in this verse 
and the willingness of Christ to assist inquirers is strikingly exhibited. He waits to be entreated. If we have him not abiding with us, it is because we do not ask him. The two disciples journeying to Emmaus would have missed a great privilege if they had not said, Abide with us. Luke chapter 24, verse 29. Ferris on this verse remarks the wide difference between the Samaritans and the Gergesenes. The Gergesenes prayed our Lord to depart from them, the Samaritans to tarry with them. Matthew chapter 8, verse 34. He abode two days. We can only suppose that these two days were spent in teaching and preaching the gospel. One would like to know all that was thought and said in those two days. But it is an instance of the occasional silences of Scripture, which every attentive Bible reader must have noticed. The first thirty years of our Lord's life at Nazareth, the way in which St. Paul spent his time in Arabia, and his employment during his two years' imprisonment in Caesarea, are similar silences. Galatians chapter 1, verse 17 Acts chapter 24, verse 27. It is an interesting fact which has been observed by some writers that at this very day, Nablus and his neighborhood, occupying the site of Samaria and Sychar, are in a more flourishing and prosperous condition than almost any place in Palestine, while Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, which rejected Christ, have almost entirely passed away. Samaria, which believed and received him, flourishes still. Verse 41. Many more believed, own word. This verse shows the sovereignty of God in saving souls. One is called in one way, and another in another. Some Samaritans believed when they heard the woman testify. Others did not believe till they heard Christ himself. We must be careful that we do not bind down the Holy Ghost to one mode of operation. The experience of saved souls often differs widely. If people are brought to repentance and faith in Christ, we must not be stumbled because they are not all brought in the same way. Olshausen remarks on this verse, Here is a rare instance in which the ministry of the Lord produced an awakening on a large scale. Ordinarily we find that a few individuals only were aroused by him, and that these, like grains of seed, scattered here and there, became the germs of a new and higher order of things among the people at large. Verse 42. Now we believe, not thy saying. The Greek words so rendered would be translated more literally, not any longer because of thy saying do we believe. Calvin thinks that the Greek word here rendered saying means literally talk or talkativeness, and that the Samaritans appear to boast that they now have a stronger foundation than a woman's tongue. In the only other three places where it is used it is translated speech, Matthew chapter 26 verse 73, Mark chapter 14 verse 70, John chapter 8 verse 43. This is indeed Christ, Savior, world. The Greek words so rendered would be translated more literally, This is the Savior of the world, the Christ. The singular fullness of the confession made by these Samaritans deserves special notice. A more full declaration of our Lord's office as Saviour of the world is nowhere to be found in the Gospels. Whether the Samaritans clearly understood what they meant when they spoke of our Lord as the Saviour may be reasonably doubted, but that they saw with peculiar clearness a truth which the Jews were specially backward in seeing, that he had come to be a Redeemer for all mankind, and not for the Jews only, seems evident from the expression, the world. That such a testimony should have been borne to Christ— 
by a mixed race of semi-heathen origin like the samaritans and not by the jews is a remarkable instance of the grace of god the inference drawn by calvin from this verse that within two days the sense of the gospel was more plainly taught by christ at samaria than he had hitherto taught it at jerusalem seems both unwarrantable and needless ought we not rather to fix our eyes on the difference between the jews and the samaritans christ's teaching was the same but the hearts of his hearers were widely different the jews were hardened the samaritans believed chimnitius on this verse thinks that an emphasis is meant to be laid on the greek word rendered indeed literally it is truly he thinks it was used of our lord in contradistinction to the false christs and messiahs who had appeared before him as well as to the typical messiahs and saviors such as the judges in leaving this passage we may well wonder that so many samaritans should at once have believed on our lord when so few jews ever believed our wonder may well be increased when we consider that our lord worked no miracle on this occasion and that the word was the only instrument used to open the samaritans hearts we see for one thing the entire sovereignty of the grace of god the last are often first and the first last the most ignorant and unenlightened believe and are saved while the most learned and enlightened continue unbelieving and are lost we see for another thing that it is not miracles and privileges but grace which converts souls the jews saw scores of mighty works worked by our lord and heard him preach for weeks and months and yet with a few rare exceptions remained impenitent and hardened the samaritans saw no miracles worked at all and only had our lord among them for two days and yet many of them believed if ever there was clear proof that the grace of the holy spirit is the chief thing needed in order to procure the conversion of souls we have it in the verses we are now leaving the allegorical and typical meanings which some writers assign to the samaritan woman and her history as related in this chapter are hardly worth recounting some regard the woman as a type of the jewish synagogue slavishly bound to the five books of the law and drawn finally to christ to drink the living water of the gospel some regard the woman as a type of the gentile nations for five thousand years committing fornication with heathen idols and at length purged by christ and casting away their empty water-pots in obedience to christianity some go even further and regard the woman as a prophetical type of things yet to come they consider her as a type of the greek church which is yet to be brought into the true faith of christ these views appear to me at best only fanciful speculations and more likely to do harm than good by drawing men away from the plain practical lessons which the passage contains end of section eighteen Section 19 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J.C. Ryle. Chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. The rich have afflictions, the young may be sick and die, affliction a blessing, Christ's word as good as his presence. John, chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, 
for they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman, whose son was sick, at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him, and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Then the nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him, and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did, when he was come up out of Judea into Galilee. Four great lessons stand out boldly on the face of this passage. Let us fix them in our memories, and use them continually as we journey through life. We learn, firstly, that the rich have afflictions as well as the poor. We read of a nobleman in deep anxiety because his son was sick. We need not doubt that every means of restoration was used that money could procure, but money is not almighty. The sickness increased, and the nobleman's son lay at the point of death. The lesson is one which needs to be constantly impressed on the minds of men. There is no more common or more mischievous error than to suppose that the rich have no cares. The rich are as liable to sickness as the poor, and have a hundred anxieties besides, of which the poor know nothing at all. Silks and satins often cover very heavy hearts. The dwellers in palaces often sleep more uneasily than the dwellers in cottages. Gold and silver can lift no man beyond the reach of trouble. They may shut out debt and rags, but they cannot shut out care, disease, and death. The higher the tree, the more it is shaken by storms. The broader its branches, the greater is the mark which it exposes to the tempest. David was a happier man when he kept his father's sheep at Bethlehem than when he dwelt as king at Jerusalem and governed the twelve tribes of Israel. Let the servant of Christ beware of desiring riches. They are certain cares and certain uncomforts. Let him pray for the rich and not envy them. How hardly shall a rich man enter the kingdom of God! Above all, let him learn to be content with such things as he has— he only is truly rich who has treasure in heaven. We learn, secondly, in this passage, that sickness and death come to the young as well as to the old. We read of a son sick unto death, and a father in trouble about him. We see the natural order of things inverted. The elder is obliged to minister to the younger, and not the younger to the elder. The child draws nigh to the grave before the parent, and not the parent before the child. The lesson is one which we are all slow to learn. We are apt to shut our eyes to plain facts, and to speak and act, as if young people, as a matter of course, never died when young. And yet the gravestones in every churchyard would tell us that few people out of a hundred ever live to be fifty years old, while many never grow up to man's estate at all. The first grave that was ever dug on this earth was that of a young man. 
the first person who ever died was not a father but a son aaron lost two sons at a stroke david the man after god's own heart lived long enough to see three children buried job was deprived of all his children in one day these things were carefully recorded for our learning he that is wise will never reckon confidently on long life we never know what a day may bring forth the strongest and fairest are often cut down and hurried away in a few hours while the old and feeble linger on for many years the only true wisdom is to be always prepared to meet god to put nothing off which concerns eternity and to live like men ready to depart at any moment so living it matters little whether we die young or old joined to the lord jesus we are safe in any event we learn thirdly from this passage what benefits affliction can confer on the soul we read that anxiety about a son led the nobleman to christ in order to obtain help in time of need once brought into christ's company he learned a lesson of priceless value in the end he believed and his whole house all this be it remembered hinged upon the son's sickness if the nobleman's son had never been ill the father might have lived and died in his sins affliction is one of god's medicines by it he often teaches lessons which would be learned in no other way by it he often draws souls away from sin and the world which would otherwise have perished everlastingly health is a great blessing but sanctified disease is a greater prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to christ thousands at the last day will testify with david and the nobleman before us it is good for me that i have been afflicted psalm 119 verse 71 let us beware of murmuring in the time of trouble let us settle it firmly in our minds that there is a meaning a needs be and a message from god in every sorrow that falls upon us there are no lessons so useful as those learned in the school of affliction there is no commentary that opens up the bible so much as sickness and sorrow no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous nevertheless afterward it yieldeth peaceable fruit hebrews chapter twelve verse eleven the resurrection morning will prove that many of the losses of god's people were in reality eternal gains we learn lastly from this passage that christ's word is as good as christ's presence we read that jesus did not come down to capernaum to see the sick young man but only spoke the word thy son liveth almighty power went with that little sentence that very hour the patient began to amend christ only spoke and the cure was done christ only commanded and the deadly disease stood fast the fact before us is singularly full of comfort it gives enormous value to every promise of mercy grace and peace which ever fell from christ's lips he that by faith has laid hold on some word of christ has got his feet upon a rock what christ has said he is able to do and what he has undertaken he will never fail to make good the sinner who has really reposed his soul on the word of the lord jesus is safe to all eternity he could not be safer if he saw the book of life and his own name written in it if christ has said he that cometh to me i will in no wise cast out and our hearts can testify i have come we need not doubt that we are saved in the things of this world we say that seeing is believing 
but in the things of the gospel believing is as good as seeing christ's word is as good as man's deed he of whom jesus says in the gospel he liveth is alive for evermore and shall never die and now let us remember that afflictions like that of the nobleman are very common they will probably come to our door one day have we known anything of bearing affliction would we know where to turn for help and comfort when our time comes let us fill our minds and memories betimes with christ's words they are not the words of man only but of god the words that he speaks are spirit and life john chapter six verse sixty three notes john chapter four verse forty three to fifty four verse forty three after two days the greek words here would be more literally rendered after the two days i e after the two days mentioned in the preceding verse departed thence quisnell remarks it is an instance of self-denial which is very uncommon to leave those who respect and applaud us that we may go to preach among others from whom we have reason to expect a quite different treatment verse forty four for jesus himself testified his own country this verse has much perplexed commentators what is meant by the expression his own country if it means galilee as most suppose how are we to reconcile it with the words which follow the galileans received him and again what is the connection between the verse before us and the one which precedes it why should our lord go into galilee when it was a place where he had no honor and finally how are we to reconcile the statement that our lord had no honor in galilee with the undeniable fact that nearly all his disciples and adherents were galileans all these points have given rise to much speculation and conjecture a some as origen and maldonatus get over the difficulty in the following manner they say that the words his own country must mean judea and bethlehem where christ was born the sense will then be after two days jesus departed from samaria and went into galilee and not into judea because in judea he received no honor and was not believed the solution seems to me unnatural and unsatisfactory our lord's going to galilee was a premeditated journey and not a sudden plan decided on during his stay at samaria beside this there is no proof whatever that our lord was not received and believed in judea on the contrary he made and baptized so many disciples in judea that it attracted the notice of the pharisees and made it necessary for him to depart into galilee b augustine holds that his own country means galilee and seems to attach the following sense to the verse and yet jesus testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country for when he came into galilee no one believed on him except the nobleman and his house this appears to me a far-fetched and unnatural interpretation titman and bloomfield take much the same view and render it although jesus had testified etc c chrysostom and euthymius think that his own country means capernaum this interpretation also seems to me improbable we find capernaum elsewhere called our lord's own city but nowhere else his own country see matthew chapter nine verse one d theophylact suggests that the verse before us is inserted in order to explain why our lord did not always abide and continue in galilee but only came there at intervals the reason was that he received no honor there this also seems to me an unsatisfactory interpretation 
e alfred says the only true and simple view is that this verse refers to the next following and indeed to the whole narrative which it introduces it stands as a preliminary explanation of except ye see signs and wonders ye will not believe and indicates the contrast between the samaritans who believed on him for his own word and his own countrymen who only received him because they had seen the miracles which he did at jerusalem this view of the text seems to me as far-fetched and unsatisfactory as any of those i have mentioned moreover i doubt much whether the greek word rendered for is ever used in the sense alfred puts on it in the new testament f the following explanation appears to me by far the most probable one the words his own country mean neither galilee nor judea but nazareth the sense is jesus departed from samaria into galilee but not to his own country nazareth because he testified both now and on other occasions that a prophet has no honor in his own country in confirmation of the view i have maintained it deserves notice that in the six only places in which the greek word here rendered country is found in the gospels besides the one before us it always means the town of nazareth and not the district in which nazareth is situated matthew chapter thirteen verses fifty four and fifty seven mark chapter six verses one and four luke chapter four verses twenty three and twenty four the view i have supported is that of cyril calvin colovius lamp poole de dieu pierce doddridge dyke and olshausen our lord's use of a proverb in this verse is again worthy of notice it is another proof of the value of proverbial sayings the lesson of the proverb is a very instructive one it is one of the most melancholy proofs of man's fallen and corrupt state that he never values what he is familiar with and that familiarity breeds contempt ministers of the gospel discover this by painful experience when they have resided many years in the same parish and ministered long in the same congregation those who have the most abundant supply of gospel privileges are often the people who value them least the nearer the church the further from god is often found to be literally true those who have lived furthest off and are obliged to deny themselves most in order to hear the gospel are often the very persons who take most pains to hear it a grain of comfort however may be extracted from this painful verse a minister must not despair and accuse himself of unfaithfulness because the gospel he preaches is not honored in his own congregation and many remain hardened and unbelieving after he has preached to them many years let him remember that he is sharing his master's lot he is drinking the very cup of which christ drank christ had no honor in nazareth and faithful ministers have often less honor among their own people than they have elsewhere pelican thinks that our lord testified the truth contained in this verse in reply to some one who had asked him why he did not go to nazareth i prefer the opinion that it simply means our lord always did testify and made it a practice of testifying verse forty five galileans received him the word received probably means no more than that they received him with respect and reverence as one who is no common person there is no warrant for supposing that they all received him with true faith and experimentally believed on him as saviour of their souls having seen things jerusalem feast this expression confirms the view already maintained john chapter two verse twenty three that our lord did many other miracles at jerusalem at the first passover when he was there besides casting the buyers and sellers out of the temple 
it is probable that the miracles recorded in the four gospels are only a selection out of the number that christ worked here as elsewhere we see the special use of miracles they served to arrest men's attention and gave the impression that he who wrought them deserved a hearing the galileans were ready to receive christ respectfully because they had seen his miracles they also went feast this sentence is a useful proof of the universality of the jewish custom of attending the great feasts at jerusalem and especially the feast of passover even those who lived furthest off from jerusalem in galilee made a point of going to the passover it serves to show the publicity of our lord's ministry both in life and death when he was crucified at the passover the event happened in the presence of myriads of witnesses from every part of the world the overruling providence of God ordered things so that the facts of Christ's life and death could never be denied. This thing was not done in a corner. Acts chapter 25, verse 26. Verse 46. Jesus came again, Cana. The circumstance of our Lord going twice to Cana may be accounted for by remembering the fact that one of his disciples, Nathaniel, belonged to Cana and that his mother, Mary, in all probability, had relatives there. See note on John chapter 2, verse 1. A certain nobleman. The Greek word rendered nobleman is only found here in this sense as a substantive in the New Testament. The marginal reading, a courtier or ruler, hardly makes it more clear. Some have conjectured that the nobleman must have been someone attached to Herod's court, and is therefore called a royal person, which is the literal meaning of the word. Some, as Luther, Chemnitius, Lightfoot, and Pierce, have also conjectured that Chusa, Herod's steward, whose wife Joanna became one of our Lord's disciples, and ministered unto him, Luke chapter 8, verse 3, must have been this nobleman. This is no doubt possible, and would be an interesting fact if it could be proved, but there is no authority for it except conjecture. Lightfoot adds a conjecture, that if not Chusa, it might have been Manian. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. The rarity of a nobleman and a person connected with a royal court seeking Christ under any circumstances is observed by Glasius and others. It shows us that Christ will have trophies of the power of his grace out of every rank, class, and condition. In the first chapter of St. John's Gospel, we see fishermen converted, in the third, a self righteous Pharisee in the beginning of the fourth a fallen samaritan woman and in the end a nobleman out of the king's court pierce thinks that the nobleman was one of the class called herodians matthew chapter twenty two verse sixteen son was sick at capernaum we should always notice the number and greatness of miracles which our lord worked at capernaum and the dignity of the persons at whose instance they were worked here he healed the centurion's servant Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Here, in all probability, he restored life to the daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And here, in the present instance, he healed the nobleman's son. Three distinct and leading classes had, each of them, a mighty miracle wrought among them. The centurion was a Gentile soldier. The ruler of the synagogue was a Jew of high ecclesiastical position. The nobleman was connected with the highest civil authorities. The consequence, no doubt, was that the name and power of Christ became known to every leading family in Capernaum. No wonder that our Lord says, Thou Capernaum, that art exalted unto heaven, 
Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. No place was so privileged as this city. The idea entertained by some that this nobleman was the same as the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, and that the miracle here recorded is only the same miracle differently reported, seems to me entirely destitute of foundation. The details of the two miracles are entirely different. The miracle before us is nowhere else reported in the Gospels. Verse 47. Heard that Jesus was come, etc. This verse shows how widely spread was the fame of the miracle wrought at Cana upon the occasion of our Lord's former visit, and how great was the report of our Lord's miracles at Jerusalem, brought back by the Galileans who went to the feast. In no other way can we account for the nobleman going to our Lord and beseeching him to come and heal his son. Our Lord must have got the reputation of being one who was both able and willing to work such cures. Musculus remarks on this verse, how much more love descends than ascends. In all the Gospels we never read of any sons or daughters coming to Christ on behalf of their parents. Dyke observes, Some crosses drive men to Christ, especially in our children. This was the cross that subdued Egypt, and to great men, such as this ruler, who have much to leave their children, this cross is the greatest. Verse 48 then said Jesus, Except ye see, etc. Our Lord in this verse appears to refer to the common desire expressed by the Jews to see miracles and signs as a proof of his Messiahship. Cannot you believe unless you actually see with your own eyes a miracle worked? Is your faith so small that except you see something you cannot believe? No doubt our Lord knew the heart of the man before him. He wished to test his faith and to draw out from him more earnest desires after the mercy that he wanted. The resemblance between our Lord's first answer to the nobleman, and his first answer to the woman of Canaan, who came to him about her daughter, deserves comparison. Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. Chrysostom remarks, Christ's meaning is, Ye have not yet the right faith, but still feel towards me only as a prophet. He rebuketh the state of mind with which the nobleman had come to him, because that before a miracle he believed not strongly. Thus, too, he drew him on to more belief. That the nobleman came and entreated was nothing wonderful, for parents in their great affection are wont to resort to, and talk with, physicians. But that he came without any strong purpose appears from this, that he only came to Christ when Christ came to Galilee, whereas, if he had firmly believed, he would not have hesitated when his child was at the point of death to go into Judea. Glassius thinks that our Lord, in these words, intends to contrast the faith of the Samaritans with the unbelief of the Galileans. The Samaritans believed without having seen any signs or wonders at all. Chemnitius thinks that our Lord, in this verse, spoke with special reference to the state of mind in which he found the inhabitants of Cana upon his second visit. He thinks that he found them aroused to a state of expectation and curiosity by his miracle of changing water into wine, but still destitute of any real saving faith. Poole compares the nobleman to Naaman, who had faith enough to come to Elisha's door to be healed of his leprosy, but was stumbled because Elisha did not put his hand on the diseased place, but only sent him a message. Second Kings chapter 5, verse 11. Verse 49. The nobleman saith, etc. This verse shows the earnestness of the nobleman's desire for relief, quickened and sharpened by the apparent rebuff contained in our Lord's reply to his first application. 
yet it was a saying exhibiting much ignorance it is clear that he did not discover what our lord hinted at that possibly he might be helped without his coming down to see his sick son he neither denies the truth of our lord's words nor enters into argument he only knew that he felt in grievous distress and begged our lord to come down ere his child died that our lord could heal him he did not doubt but that he could heal him at a distance without even seeing him was something that he could not yet understand chrysostom says observe how these very words show the weakness of the man when he ought after christ had rebuked his state of mind to have imagined something great concerning him even if he did not before listen how he drags along the ground he speaks as though christ could not raise his son after death and as though he knew not in what state the child was brentius remarks that the nobleman did not bring to christ faith but merely a spark of faith verse fifty jesus saith unto him etc three things are very deserving of notice in this verse a we should observe our lord's marvellous kindness and compassion he takes no notice of the nobleman's weak faith and slowness of understanding he freely grants his request and gives his son life and health without delay b we should observe our lord's almighty power he simply speaks the words thy son liveth and at once a sick person at several miles distance is cured and made well he spake and it was done c we should observe not least the unhesitating confidence which the nobleman reposed in our lord's power he asked no more questions after he heard the words thy son liveth at once he believed that all would be well and went his way cyril observes on this verse that our lord here healed two persons at one time by the same words he brought the nobleman's mind to faith and delivered the body of the young man from disease chrysostom remarks what can be the reason why in the case of the centurion christ undertook voluntarily to come and heal while here though invited he came not because in the case of the centurion faith had been perfected and therefore he undertook to go that we might learn the right-mindedness of the man but here the nobleman was imperfect when therefore he continually urged him saying come down and knew not clearly that even when absent he could heal he showeth that even this was possible unto him in order that this man might gain from his not going that knowledge which the centurion had of himself bishop hall observes the ruler's request was come and heal christ's answer was go thy way thy son liveth our merciful saviour meets those in the end whom he crosses in the way how sweetly doth he correct our prayers and while he doth not give us what we asked gives us better than we asked verse fifty one as he was now going down the relative positions of cana and capernaum are not precisely known at the present day the exact site of capernaum is a matter of dispute among travellers and geographers all we can glean from the expression before us is that cana was probably in the hill country and capernaum on the lake of galilee hence a person leaving cana for capernaum would go down thy son liveth the meaning of this expression must evidently be thy son is so much better that he is comparatively alive from the dead he was as one dead he is now alive verse fifty two then inquired he the hour this man's mind seems at once to have laid hold on the nature of the miracle and to have acknowledged the power of christ's word he began to amend 
the greek expression so rendered is a very peculiar one and only found in this place it is literally he had himself better in more elegant order let it be noted that here as elsewhere we find an expression which is only used once in the new testament this shows that it is no valid argument against the inspiration of any text or passage that it contains greek expressions nowhere else used yesterday at the seventh hour this expression has been differently interpreted according to the view which commentators take of st john's mode of reckoning time those who think that he numbered hours in the same way that we do maintain that it means at seven o'clock in the evening those on the contrary who maintain that st john observed the jewish mode of computation say that it means at one o'clock in the afternoon i have already given it as my decided opinion that john observes the jewish mode of reckoning time and i therefore hold with those who think that the seventh hour means one o'clock the arguments of those who say that if it had been one o'clock the nobleman would never have taken till the next day to reach home appear to my mind quite inconclusive for one thing we know nothing accurately of the distance from cana to capernaum for another thing we forget the slow rate at which people travel in eastern countries on bad roads in a hilly country for another thing it is entirely an assumption to suppose that the nobleman had nothing else to do at cana when he came to jesus about his son for anything we know he had as a nobleman business of various kinds which made it impossible for him to reach home in the afternoon after jesus had said thy son liveth last but not least it seems hardly probable that the nobleman would have asked our lord to come down to capernaum at so late an hour as seven o'clock in the evening or would have set off on his own return at that hour and met his servants in the night the fever left him trench remarks that the words seem to indicate that there was not merely an abatement of the fever but that it suddenly forsook him compare luke chapter four verse nine verse fifty three himself believed beda remarks on the matter of the nobleman's believing that there are three degrees of faith the beginning the increase and the perfection there was a beginning in the man when he first came to christ an increase when our lord told him that his son lived and a perfection when he found him to have recovered at that very time his whole house this expression probably means his whole family including children and servants we have no right whatever to exclude children from the sense of the words remembering this we shall better understand what is meant when it is written st paul baptized the household of stephanus or when it is related that the house of lydia was baptized first corinthians chapter one verse sixteen acts chapter sixteen verse fifteen there seems no reason for doubting that the nobleman from this time forth became a thorough true-hearted believer in christ if as some suppose he is the same as chusa herod's steward we may perhaps date the conversion of joanna his wife to the period of the verse now before us bishop hall remarks on this verse great men cannot want clients their example sways some their authority more they cannot go to either of the other worlds alone in vain do they pretend power over others who labor not to draw their families to god verse fifty four the second miracle that jesus did the plain meaning of these words is that our lord had worked no other miracle in galilee before this one excepting that of turning the water into wine at cana 
it appears likely that many of our lord's earliest miracles were wrought in judea and jerusalem although we have no record of them except in the second chapter of st john's gospel john chapter two verse twenty three this fact is noteworthy because it throws light on the wickedness of the jews at jerusalem where at last christ was condemned and crucified chrysostom remarks the word second is not added without cause but to exalt yet more the praises of the Samaritans, by showing that even when a second miracle had been wrought, they who beheld it had not yet reached so high as those who had not seen one. Origen says, Mystically the two journeys of Christ into Galilee signify his two advents. At the first he makes us his guests at supper, and gives us wine to drink. At the second he raises up the nobleman's son at the point of death, i.e., the Jewish people, who after the fullness of the Gentiles attain salvation. The sixth son is the Jewish people fallen from the true religion. This is patristic interpretation. Allegorical expositions like this destroy the whole value of God's word. At this rate the Bible may be made to mean anything. Gemnitius thinks that with this chapter ends the first year of our Lord's public ministry, and gives a useful summary of the principal events comprehended within it. These are the Lord's baptism the calling of the first disciples, the miracle at Cana, the miracle of casting out of the temple the buyers and sellers, the conversation with Nicodemus, the tarrying in Judea and baptizing, the testimony of John the Baptist, the journey through Samaria, the arrival in Galilee, and the healing of the nobleman's son. Epiphanius, he observes, calls it the acceptable year of our Lord's ministry, because it was the most quiet and peaceful. Bengal, in closing this chapter, observes that St. John seems to arrange our Lord's miracles in threes. He relates three in Galilee, the first at the marriage in Cana, the second on the nobleman's son, the third in feeding five thousand men, John chapter 6, three in Judea, the first at Bethesda at Pentecost, chapter 5, the second after the Feast of Tabernacles on the blind man, chapter 9, the third on Lazarus before the Passover, chapter 11. So also after the ascension he describes three appearances of our Lord to his disciples. John chapter 21, verse 14. Dyke observes how God keeps an account of all the gracious means he affords men for their good. The second miracle is specified to aggravate the infidelity of the Jews, that though Christ had now done another and a second miracle, yet only the ruler and his household believed. Two miracles wrought, and one household converted. God takes account not only how many men are won by a sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, but of how many sermons are lost by men. End of section 19